enjoy the beauty of life. More hours of work doesn't equal greater productivity. That's because our attention and willpower have limitations, and quality work requires time for rest. Working longer hours doesn't mean more productivity. Henry Ford famously found that when he cut his employees' hours from 48 per week to 40, productivity actually increased. This discovery of Ford's dovetailed perfectly with the labor rights movement, which was pushing for shorter work weeks for the sake of workers' well-being. Over the next two decades, the 40-hour work week became more and more common in a variety of industries, until eventually, it was the American norm. What happens when we work more than 40 hours per week? We get very stressed out, but we don't get a whole lot more done. The more a person works past the 40-hour limit, the less efficient and accurate they seem to be at their job. Past the 50-hour point, a person's productivity declines very sharply. Past the 55-hour point, and a person is so unproductive and tired that they might as well not be at work at all. Additionally, the longer a person's work week is, the more likely they are to be absent from work in the weeks to come. That's always a warning sign of employee stress, absenteeism, Annette says. If people stop coming into work suddenly, that's often an early sign that something is wrong. So there are good reasons for why the standard work week became 40 hours. Anything beyond that seems to sap an employee's strength and yield diminishing returns to their employer. But these standards were developed during the Industrial Revolution when people were doing repetitive, manual labor work. Are these numbers even still relevant today, when most repetitive work is done by a machine and most people's jobs are complex and mentally taxing? Industrial organizational psychologists like Annette have observed how employees work and organize their days. They have found that the eight-hour workday is, in fact, unrealistic in many ways. Many workers spend upward of eight hours per day in their workplaces, but when we look closer at their activities, we can see that the lion's share of that time isn't devoted to work. Researchers consistently find that in office jobs, people are capable of being productive for only about three hours per day on average. The remaining hours are spent doing other things, including preparing food and drinks, chit-chatting with coworkers, browsing social media, engaging in online shopping, or even just staring into space. When managers attempt to make up for this supposedly lazy time by requiring their employees to work longer hours, it actually backfires, and employees do even less. When employers, and even some researchers, discuss these trends, they tend to frame it in terms of time that has been lost or wasted, or they rack their brains figuring out how to motivate people to work harder. But before you let the laziness lie tempt you into accepting that, think back to Marvin's research into cyber loafing. When we talk about idle time as being a waste, it implies that people are capable of working nonstop for a full eight hours. If only they had more willpower. But after periods of hard work and focus, people need time for rest. The employee laziness that so many managers fret about patently does not exist. Those distracted, idle-seeming employees are already doing all they can. 
A major reason for that has to do with how the human brain handles attention. Our attention is limited. I've taught college students for a decade at this point, so I know how hard it is to hold someone's attention. My students are mature, seasoned adults who are returning to college. They are committed, driven people who have a lot of the tenacity that the laziness lie has taught all of us to praise. Yet, even among these students, maintaining attention is a major struggle. Education researchers have known for many decades that the average student cannot pay attention for more than an hour or so without a break. Anyone who leads a class on a regular basis will tell you that they have to use a variety of tools, media, and activities to keep a room full of students focused. Even if a professor does everything they possibly can to keep the class lively, attentiveness still declines slowly over time. When I worked to design my own online classes, I learned that students typically keep their attention fixed on a video for only about six minutes. If the video is any longer than that, distraction sets in, whether the student wants it to or not. In the workplace, the patterns are similar. Workers have trouble staying on task for more than 20 minutes at a time, and the more distractions, such as email, ambient noise, and instant messages, they have to deal with, the shorter their attention span is. This has nothing to do with willpower or laziness. Instead, it has everything to do with how the human brain fundamentally works. One of my first psychology-related jobs was in a neuroscience lab at The Ohio State University. My boss at the time, a researcher named Jay Van Bavel, showed me data from participants who had been sitting in an fMRI, functional magnetic resonance imaging, brain scanner, for an hour or more. He described to me how their attention levels curved up and down many times per minute, with tons of experiment time lost to distraction, daydreaming, and mental fatigue. These participants had been instructed to pay close attention throughout the entire experiment, but even then, their attention naturally flitted about from moment to moment. It turns out that even when we think we're focusing on something quite intently, our attention is jumping around a bit, even on the millisecond level. Jay told me that these peaks and valleys were pretty much inevitable no matter what the researchers did to keep participants engaged. Rather than dismissing those study participants as horribly lazy, researchers simply knew the data had to be cleaned and filtered. Jay's study participants weren't daydreaming or checking out of his studies because they were lazy or even distracted. There's not much to do or look at when you're sitting inside a dark, gray fMRI machine. Attention fluctuates naturally because the human brain is constantly scanning the environment for new information, potential threats, opportunities for social contact, and more. Even when we're intently working on something, part of our attention is tracking our surroundings, ready to interrupt us if any distractions or threats happen to pop up. Our attention is less like a laser beam, which can be pointed at any single specific point we desire, and more like a rotating lighthouse lantern, temporarily bathing individual rocks in light as it continues to spin across its surroundings. Since our attention is naturally so scattered, focusing on something requires us to exert some serious effort. That effort can't be sustained forever, which is a big part of why most workers need lots of time to be lazy. It's important that we make time for idle chit-chat, 
dawdling at the water cooler, and daydreaming at our workstations, particularly if we want to engage in high-quality work. The more we overextend ourselves, the worse our work gets. Quality work requires time for rest. When we work too hard and for too long, the quality of our work starts to break down. We become more irritable and are easily distracted by things like random background noise. We get sloppier and more prone to errors, whether they're as simple and low stakes as making more typos or as catastrophic as a doctor making a mistake in the middle of surgery. Tiredness even makes us more apathetic about doing our jobs in the right way. A study in the Journal of Applied Psychology found when healthcare workers, such as doctors and nurses, are exhausted from working long shifts, they lose the motivation to follow basic hygiene rules and cut back on how often they wash their hands. A survey of 450 call center employees found that the more tired and overwhelmed an employee became, the more they tended to withdraw emotionally from their jobs and the less likely they were to show up for work. Work fatigue also kills creativity. In the previous chapter, I described how creative insight requires a period of incubation, a restful break that allows the creative mind to unconsciously come up with new ideas and solutions. The flip side of the incubation phenomenon is also true. When people don't get access to breaks and lazy time, they think in more conventional, uncreative ways and are more likely to get stuck. If the climate is right, Annette says, people will be proactive and suggest new things that nobody's ever tried before. But when there's more of a micromanagement approach, people will just go along and comply, and you don't see the same level of commitment. When organizations try to force their employees to work harder than is good for them, lackluster, uncreative work tends to result. The subreddit, r backslash malicious compliance, is filled with stories of jaded employees who follow their employer's rules in a super-literal fashion, slowing down workplace processes out of spite. For example, underpaid, overworked, mentally checked-out security staff might slow down admission to an event by asking every patron to empty out every single pocket in their clothing, even obviously decorative pockets on small children's clothing. When Saranine was in the military, her commanding officer once tried to discipline her by demanding that she write an essay that was exactly 1,000 words long on any topic of her choosing. Within an hour, Saranine returned a paper covered in random-looking symbols but which Microsoft Word recognized as exactly 1,000 words. When her commanding officer asked her what the topic of this essay was supposed to be, she simply said, following directions. Often the work of exhausted employees suffers for reasons other than simple resentment. Tired people also think in more biased ways, focusing on negatives and making more unfair judgments. An employee working for the ninth or tenth hour of the day is a ghost of the upbeat, focused, and engaged person they were in the first hour of the day. All this research makes it abundantly clear that the more we work, the less we are able to accomplish, and the less unique and meaningful our work becomes. An overly long, excessively demanding workday erodes a person's capacity to think well, to care about what they're doing, and to produce meaningful results. And that's just what happens to the employee's output. When we examine how overwork impacts an employee's well-being and long-term health, 
the story becomes far more disturbing. What happens when we overwork? The social psychologist Christina Maslach was a trailblazer in the field of burnout research in the 1970s and 80s. She initially set out to understand burnout among people in what we call the helping professions, therapists, social workers, and nurses. Maslach knew those types of jobs could become draining over time and had low retention rates, but she wanted to understand why. As she observed and spoke with workers in these fields, however, what she uncovered was more than she could have imagined. These people weren't just exhausted. They were suffering from the mental and even philosophical toll of their work, and sometimes that suffering was downright traumatic. Burned-out caregivers weren't just agitated or tired, the way all of us can be after a long workday. Rather, they were losing touch with their patients, their co-workers, and even themselves. These people, who likely went into their fields because they cared about others, were now unable to feel genuine empathy for those they were there to serve. They reported feeling numb and hopeless, or even jaded. Some had become bitter, hating their patients. I had a tiny taste of that type of emotional numbing when I started conducting interviews for this book. I knew I wanted to sit down with a lot of compulsive overworkers to talk to them about their fears of laziness and the toll such fears had taken on their lives. I wasn't prepared for the number of tragic stories I heard. Friends and strangers started pouring out their hearts to me, telling me about their intense experiences working themselves to the bone. At first, it felt really cathartic to speak to people with experiences similar to mine. Then it got painful. I was being triggered by all the stories of loss, illness, and stress that I was taking in. My experience with burnout back in 2014 was traumatic. I often think of it as my lost year. It changed the whole course of my life. Being reminded of what that year felt like over and over again made me start to feel jittery, anxious, and unsafe. It made me want to withdraw from the world. I started bailing on my friends and canceling plans so I could stay home and recharge. Then, for a little while, my feelings got even darker. I started to dread the interviews I had scheduled. When a person sat before me and started talking about their struggles with overwork, I'd find myself getting bored. I'd think, oh God, please stop droning on and on. I can't listen to any more of this. I felt like I was being emotionally vampirized by these people, that their stories were sucking the energy out of me and leaving a bitter, cranky husk behind. Empathy requires a great deal of energy, and it's painful and exhausting to relive other people's suffering repeatedly without a means of escape. Burnout was rapidly heading my way, and I had to switch up my interviewing strategy in order to avoid it. I started putting time limits on the length of my interviews and tried to do only a few per week. Maslach found that burned-out people felt adrift and hopeless. As they lost empathy for their clients, they also started experiencing a profound loss of identity with no sense of purpose. They described their jobs as utterly unrewarding. They became detached from all the things they used to love and be passionate about, including treasured hobbies that had nothing to do with work. Some of these caregivers could no longer understand why they'd ever been interested in working as nurses, therapists, or social workers in the first place. Burnout had robbed them of the people they used to be. Sometimes, there was no bringing those people back. 
In the mid-1980s, Maslach expanded her focus beyond the helping professions. She started looking at burnout among people in the service industry, as well as office workers and blue-collar laborers. She had begun to suspect that burnout wasn't just the byproduct of hard emotional work, such as being a therapist or a social worker, but that it could be a consequence of working too hard in general. What she found suggested that she was absolutely right. When Maslach began speaking with people who worked in cubicles, restaurants, and warehouses, what she found were the same symptoms those in the helping professions had reported to her. These people also complained of sleepless nights, increased sick days, debilitating self-doubt, and a growing sense of emptiness in their jobs. Like the exhausted nurses and therapists, they had also begun to see their work as meaningless. A pervasive sense of dejection and apathy had descended upon their lives, sapping the joy from everything they did. Maslach also wanted to know what effect, if any, burnout had on these workers' behavior. In particular, she wanted to know whether it affected their abilities to do their jobs. What she found was that burned-out employees, even though they worked long hours, were actually less productive and engaged than other employees who weren't burned out. These overworked employees were also more likely to suffer from anxiety and to use substances to cope, because drugs were more readily available to them than time off. They also found small ways to stick it to their employers, whether by stealing office supplies or fudging their timesheets, like James and his procrastinating friends or the jaded employees on r backslash malicious compliance. These burned-out workers had turned to petty misbehavior to express their resentment. Maslach also found that avoiding burnout wasn't just about working less. It had to do with a person's outlook and whether their organization rewarded their efforts. Perfectionists were particularly susceptible to burnout, for example, as were people who set unrealistically high goals for themselves. Workplaces, where the goals were vague and projects were never completed, tended to have more burned-out workers. In other words, when work seems like an endless, pointless slog, and workers have no sense of being recognized for all that they do, burnout is far more common. Maslach found that burned-out people tended to complain that their workplaces were thanklessly demanding. Because their co-workers often felt just as demotivated and jaded as they did, resentment tended to build and then spread from one employee to another, creating something called the burnout contagion effect. Once this kind of group burnout set in at a workplace, it was difficult to put a stop to it. As a result of these observations, Maslach and her colleague Susan Jackson developed a measure of burnout, the Maslach Burnout Inventory, or MBI. It's a popular and well-regarded measure of burnout that researchers and therapists still use to this day. The MBI describes burnout as consisting of three things, emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, or loss of identity, and a lost sense of personal accomplishment. Here are a few example items from the MBI. In them, you can hear the desperation and exhaustion that characterizes the condition. I feel like I'm at the end of my rope. I feel fatigued when I get up in the morning and have to face another day on the job. I feel emotionally drained from my work. I don't feel that I'm positively influencing other people's lives through my work. I have not accomplished many worthwhile things in this job. I can't help but think that 
Had I known more about burnout back in 2014, I might have been able to avoid the major health breakdown I experienced. This time around, when I felt burnout nipping at my heels, I was able to be proactive and set boundaries to protect myself from it. I limited the number of interviews I conducted. I restructured the interviews themselves, making sure to ask questions about positive, happy topics, as well as ones about doom and gloom. I also started reaching out to people who I knew had changed their lives by embracing laziness and stepping away from overwork. By limiting the amount of upsetting information I was taking in and making time for more encouraging, growth-oriented conversations, I was able to keep the burnout at bay before it was too late. From an employer's perspective, burnout is damaging because it decreases the quality of an employee's work. When we reach our emotional breaking point in our jobs, we skip days or even walk out. It encourages us to cut corners and check out whenever we're in the office. Burnout alienates us from our sense of self while simultaneously impacting our choices and our ability to concentrate. But that isn't the most harrowing part of burnout. Not even close. The worst part of burnout is the impact it has on the sufferer's quality of life. Burning out is like going from seeing the world in color to seeing it only in black and white. When we burn out, we stop being able to feel our emotions as intensely and may even experience pain and hunger less strongly, making it even harder to remember to be kind to ourselves. In addition, burned out people also have a reduced ability to recognize emotions in other people, which means that they can't connect as readily with their family and friends. This worsens their social isolation. Even after a burned-out person leaves the situation that caused them to burn out, they may remain emotionally detached and apathetic for months to come. In some cases, burnout erodes relationships so severely that they never recover. Not only that, but being burned out actually makes us worse at thinking and making decisions across the board. Burned-out people drink more and have worse impulse control in general, which means they're more likely to make bad decisions like gambling or having illicit affairs. They experience far more depression and anxiety, and burnout can exacerbate the symptoms of any other mental illness they already have. Burned-out people don't sleep as well, which means they're likely more irritable and more prone to getting sick. Because they see life as purposeless, burned-out people take more risks, which can lead to terrible consequences. Burned bridges, wrecked cars that they really don't want. Chronic burnout can even cause a person to lose brain volume. Put this way, burnout is not just a labor issue. It's a public health issue. Overwork strips many of us of our health, our cognitive capacity, and even our passion for life. It makes us less productive and wreaks destruction in our personal and professional lives. In its most extreme cases, it can take years off our life expectancy or cause us to drop dead at our desks. Yet, so many of us are still beguiled and tricked by the laziness lie and think burned-out people just need to buck up and try harder. We all overextend ourselves sometimes, and that choice, when freely made, is not inherently destructive. We might stay out late partying with friends one weekend, for example, or pull an all-nighter working on a creative project that truly excites us. But there's a huge difference between following our passions 
and pushing ourselves to overwork on a regular basis because laziness lie has convinced us that we have to. And unfortunately, far too many workplaces operate under the assumption that we must all constantly push ourselves past the limit. Working too hard is bad for us. It doesn't make us more productive. It damages us profoundly in ways we're still only beginning to understand the scope of, but we don't have to live this way. We can fight to build more healthy, harmonious lives, ones that prioritize laziness just as much as they value hard work. How to Work Less Like Annette Towler, Caitlin Smith is a former academic who's taken major steps to build a more sustainable, burnout-proof life for herself. Caitlin runs the Wild Mind Collective, an organization that provides stressed and burned-out academics with a digital space to talk about issues such as finding appropriate work-life boundaries, identifying their true passions, and fighting against prejudice and bias within the academy. Her site features interviews with diverse writers and thinkers who seek to build healthy, balanced lives, and her blog offers tools for overworked people who are trying to make their existence more manageable and peaceful. It's no surprise to me that Caitlin is doing this vital, timely work. I've known her since we were teenagers, and she's always been deeply reflective and willing to go against the grain. She speaks in a measured, meticulous way that's very soothing. At the same time, her words have always challenged me to see things in a new light. Look at how people at work talk about coffee, she said to me at lunch a few years ago. Everyone talks constantly about how much they need coffee or want more coffee. Some workplaces provide their employees with as much free coffee as they want. It's a stimulant that makes us work more, and it causes so many people to have terrible anxiety. And yet, most people don't even question why they need to consume so much of it. Instead, we romanticize it. Caitlin's words stayed with me for years because I saw myself and so many people I know clearly reflected in them. I've started every single day of my life with a cup of coffee since I was 15 years old. In fact, I was proud to become a coffee drinker as a teen, because I thought it made me more adult. Yet it had never occurred to me that relying on coffee was a sign of just how intense my workload and drive to succeed was. If I needed to be on an anxiety-provoking stimulant every single day in order to function, was I really setting my life up in a healthy way? Was I creating expectations for myself that were sustainable? Was I so afraid of laziness that I couldn't let my body just be? Caitlin is an expert at avoiding the pressures of the laziness lie. She's bravely forged a life that reflects her own ideals rather than other people's priorities. On the Wild Mind Collective site, she's shared a series of questions that she uses to determine whether her life is on the right track. 1. When am I most in my element? 2. What doesn't bring me alive? What feels dreadful? 3. What do I find inexhaustibly fascinating? 4. When have I been most happy? 5. Who are the people I want to work with? 6. What do I need to be physically well? Caitlin's questions point to how vital it is to create a life that we actually find enjoyable and enriching. Using these questions, Caitlin decided to walk away from environments that were toxic and overly demanding, including an academic department that she once called home, as well as 
the world of ballet. She stopped devoting her time to dry academic writing and instead put more energy into presentations and blog posts that made research more approachable to a wider audience. And she points out the excessive, unrealistic workloads of so many professional environments, including academia, so that she can help people see through the laziness lie and forge new paths for themselves. Since the laziness lie has taught all of us to say yes to as much work as possible and to ignore our body's every need, it takes a lot of self-knowledge and confidence to be able to say no to things. The traditional workplace is fundamentally broken in many ways. In order to thrive, we have to detach from mainstream, moralistic expectations of how we should be spending our time. That kind of rebellion is really scary, and in many fields of work, downright risky. Relatively few of us have the luxury and privilege of completely restructuring our work lives. There are concrete steps we can take, however, if we want to learn how to honor our health more and begin to work less. These tips are rooted in industrial organizational psychology research, as well as a series of interviews I conducted with therapists and mental health counselors who help overcommitted, burned-out clients. Put very broadly, the tips fall under three umbrellas. 1. Advocate for your autonomy. 2. Focus on quality, not hours spent at work. 3. Break the work-life interference loop. These pieces of advice are designed to apply to overworked people in a variety of industries, with varying degrees of status and freedom. Someone like Caitlin or Annette has a lot of power to tailor their day-to-day lives because they have the status that an advanced education provides. Similarly, I was able to restructure my own work life because I had a PhD and skills I could charge a hefty hourly rate for as a freelancer. If you're working in retail or as a server at a restaurant, that kind of leeway is rarely available. In those situations, you'll need to pool resources and bargaining power with your fellow employees and push in a collective fashion for the treatment you need and deserve. These tips are designed to focus on the choices you have control over as an employee, a freelancer, or a hustling victim of the gig economy. They have everything to do with how you schedule your day, how you set goals, and what your mindset about work is. Advocate for your autonomy. One of the greatest predictors of both job satisfaction and employee motivation is how much freedom a person has. Contrary to every micromanager's worst fears, it's not the case that an unwatched, unbothered employee is a non-productive one. Most people thrive when given a little autonomy to set their own priorities and work at their own pace. One person I spoke to about this was Marcus Nini, a manager and mechanical engineer whose business operates out of Germany. Marcus has always based his management strategy on what the latest research has to say on the topic. As a scientist, he has relied on the data to tell him how to lead people in an effective way, just as he relied on the data to inform his engineering work. A few years ago, Marcus founded CQNet, a management training firm that focuses on teaching the principles of evidence-based management to other leaders. Marcus formed the organization because he noticed that a lot of managers didn't understand how to inspire and motivate people. Most employees, Marcus says, have a fire. 
they have a motivation to really try to achieve something, to do the things they like because they like them. They're self-motivated, intrinsically motivated to do something, which is in stark contrast to what many leaders think about how people work. At Marcus's organization, employees have the ability to set their own goals and pursue the projects they find the most stimulating. You might think that would make the business chaotic or unproductive, but Marcus has consistently found the opposite. The more freedom employees are given, the more satisfied they are, and the better his business performs. When workers are truly invested in the duties they take on, they work harder and deliver consistent, high-quality results. It turns out that trusting employees to get things done is vastly more beneficial than trying to police people's work habits or forcing them to put in long hours. When leaders push people to be more productive, he says, it's basically against their human nature. It squashes and pushes down their motivation. In the psychological literature, this is sometimes called the over-justification effect. Basically, if you take a job that a person naturally likes doing and then start tying that pleasant activity to rewards or punishment, such as their level of pay or whether they get reprimanded, you'll actually make the task less pleasant for them. Suddenly, they're not doing their job because they like it, but because they have to. That creates a tendency toward overwork, stress, and misery. Annette Towler also brought up the importance of autonomy. She says, when people feel autonomy, when they feel like they're accomplishing something that gives them a sense of control over their work, and it leads to higher job satisfaction, and generally, what's good for an employee's well-being is good for the quality of their output and productivity. On a more personal level, this research means that we don't have to push and pressure ourselves to overcome our lazy side. Our motivation will come naturally, so long as we avoid pushing ourselves past a healthy work-life balance. We can listen to our internal laziness signals, work slowly and carefully, and take time off as often as we need. That will help us far more in the long run than micromanaging our schedules and pushing ourselves to exert effort even when we're running low on energy. So how do you advocate for autonomy in your workplace? There are several steps you can take, depending on the nature of your work and how receptive the higher-ups at your organization are to change. Many of these steps are also relevant to how you manage yourself. Here are some tips. 1. Share the science on autonomy and motivation. Even though decades and decades of research show that micromanaging isn't effective and that autonomous employees are happier and get more done, most people are completely unaware of that fact. So share the research far and wide to help legitimize the push for workplace autonomy. If your boss might be receptive to changing their ways, point them to some of the sources in this book or to Marcus's writing for managers on CQNet or other science-backed articles on workplace productivity. Point to evidence of it in your own workplace. Remind leadership of times when employees were happy and effective because they weren't being pushed too hard. If you don't have the power to influence a boss, educate your coworkers and friends about these facts and consider organizing a union. The more informed people are, the more they can move toward an evidence-based workplace. Two, ask for flex time and remote work options. 
The outbreak of COVID-19 left many people working from home for the first time in their careers. The shift online was a drastic and sudden change for a lot of organizations, but it demonstrated in a stark way that flexible schedules and telework can be just as effective as coming into the office. At this point in history, every organization needs to be open to unconventional work systems and schedules. The data shows that flexible scheduling works. When people aren't required to adhere to a specific schedule, they have more freedom to set their own priorities and can build a day that allows time for relaxation, family obligations, and work. When workers can adopt their own schedules, they're more productive and satisfied. Once again, share this data with other people and emphasize to those in leadership positions that this is the wave of the future and a humane, practical response to the demands of the modern world. 3. Take on responsibilities that excite you. This tip may seem out of place. How can taking on new responsibilities help me work less? But hear me out. Many employees discount their ability to create unique, distinctive roles for themselves in their organizations. We often wind up saying yes to whatever responsibilities come our way, too afraid to question whether we're a good fit for those duties. For those of us who do freelance or gig economy work, the pressure to take on every single job opportunity, regardless of whether we like it, is immense. To break out of this self-defeating, grueling pattern, we have to focus on defining what we want our professional lives to be. Research consistently shows that when an employee crafts their job into what they want it to be, they're more engaged and will flourish on the new career path they've created for themselves. If you can, present your strengths to your employer and prioritize the work you feel the best about. Convince your manager that your time is best spent performing the duties you do well. This isn't possible in every organization, but when you can slowly reshape your position into one that suits you, your odds of satisfaction and of getting promoted go way up. It takes some serious self-advocacy skills to ask for new levels of responsibility and to reshape your job into something you'll genuinely find motivating. But if you can do it, it's well worth it. Along the way, you may also have to contemplate leaving a job that's painful, unpleasant, or unable to grow alongside you. Not everyone has the ability to leave a job that's punishing and exhausting, of course. But in my interviews for this book, I've found time and time again that many people are afraid to even consider leaving a job that's hurting them because they fear that doing so is giving up or being lazy. They may also have internalized their employer's beliefs that they're incapable or incompetent and thus ill-suited for any other work. If you find yourself thinking in this way, make sure to examine it and challenge it to see if it holds water. Abusive managers thrive on making workers believe they have fewer options than they actually do. If you find that your workplace isn't receptive to change and you lack better options, consider talking to your fellow employees and organizing to get things changed. As a group, you have far more power to reshape the workplace and make it more humane. Focus on quality, not hours spent at work. The laziness lie says that virtuous, worthwhile people spend long hours at their jobs, toiling away no matter how drained they feel. In organizations ruled by the laziness lie, people are obsessed with keeping up appearances, clocking in early, lingering long after their shifts are over, and watching the habits of other people like hawks. This is both emotionally unhealthy and totally useless from a productivity perspective. 
Instead of tying your value as a person to the number of hours you spend at work, focus on the results. This can fundamentally shift both how you think and feel about yourself and how you advocate for yourself to an employer. Consider your work in terms of these questions. 1. What's something I accomplished this month that I'm really proud of? 2. How have my skills grown in the past year? 3. Have I found more effective ways of doing old tasks? 4. Have I improved processes at my workplace or made things run more smoothly? 5. How have I supported other people in doing their jobs more effectively? You can see that these questions take a holistic look at your work and how you've grown into a role or organization. They also allow you to give yourself credit for things that we don't always count as productive. Things like teaching a skill to an employee in a different department, or learning how to do an old task in a new way. Each of these items touches on ways that an employee develops, becoming more efficient, skillful, and wise. And none of them have to do with whether you came into the shop earlier than everyone else. By looking at your work in this way, you can begin investing your energy in things that are enriching and meaningful rather than in a flurry of stressful, rote tasks that get you nowhere. You can also demonstrate your value to your employer in ways that are measurable and lasting. When you put emphasis on growing your skills and delivering results, you can break out of nasty patterns of overworking and having nothing of substance to show for it. Doing this, however, can require becoming a bit lazy and cutting back on job duties that aren't serving you anymore. Marcus put this principle into practice recently with an employee who was struggling to get things done. The employee was clearly stressed and not putting out high-quality work. All the telltale signs of burnout were there, such as increased absenteeism and flat, blunted emotions. But instead of punishing the employee or reprimanding him, Marcus sat down with him and tried to come up with a solution. I interviewed this employee and his supervisor, Marcus says, and in this case, I found that when he got too great a workload, the employee started to get overwhelmed and frustrated and will begin to burn out. So we made a new plan with him and gave him a workload that he could handle. With a reduced workload, the employee began to stabilize. He started showing up for work more consistently and doing a higher quality job. He actually began taking on greater responsibilities after that, particularly in an area that was interesting and engaging to him. He eventually became a major leader and innovator within that department. He'd found a niche where he could truly excel. But this was only possible because Marcus was a compassionate, evidence-based manager and let the employee shape his job around his distinct skills and passions. I also had to flip my work priorities recently. I used to start my day by reading and responding to emails. I tried to maintain a totally empty inbox. Only after I was done getting back to everyone would I let myself get to less time-sensitive tasks like writing or planning new lectures for my students. I was often frustrated by how little time I had left to do the things that mattered to me the most. When I told my therapist Jason about this, he furrowed his brow and gave me a look that I knew meant I was screwing up. Isn't writing your book more important to you? in terms of your long-term goals and where you want to be in your life, he asked. Would you rather have this book be the best thing it can be, or would you rather be caught up on every single random email every day? Sending dozens of emails every morning made me feel productive, but it was a big drain on my time, 
and reduced the energy I had available to do thoughtful, quality work on my book. So I completely reversed my schedule. I put writing time at the top of my day when I typically have the most energy. I still reply to my colleagues and students eventually, but instead of trying to chip away at every single thing on my digital to-do list, I focus more on doing what matters most, writing, and doing it well. Sometimes doing a job well means letting other responsibilities drop, at least for a little while. Break the work-life interference loop. Email used to eat up my weekends and evenings just as badly as it did my mornings. Like so many overworked people, I felt the compulsive need to stay caught up and treated every work-related message or text from a student as an emergency that had to be immediately addressed. I'd be in bed answering emails until midnight and then wonder why I was too anxious to get to sleep. In order for me to build a life that actually included room for restorative idleness, I had to drastically cut down my digital work time. Luis de Michelli Matran is a counselor who specializes in helping stressed out, overextended people. In her private practice, Rhythms Within, she works with clients on setting more appropriate work-life boundaries, and often that involves cutting back on work-related smartphone time. I've had a couple of people ask their bosses about cutting back on late-night emails, she says. Often they need help working up the nerve to even ask, but they'll say, Hey, I'm really having trouble dealing with stress. I'm not going to be available to answer emails after 8 p.m. anymore. And sometimes it's gone really well. Sometimes their managers have even said, You know, that's a good idea. I won't send you anything after that time either. Often, organizations get into a pattern of running on stress-fueled fumes, and sending late-night emails becomes an unquestioned norm. As Louise mentions, many bosses themselves suffer with inappropriate work-life boundaries. Sometimes all it takes is a single person questioning the standard way of doing business for toxic expectations to be reduced. Marcus Nini takes a similar approach in his workplace. Though, for him, setting appropriate work-life boundaries really comes down to an employee's preferences. It depends on the personality of the person, he says. I think the key is to recognize how people cope with stress. I had one manager who wanted to turn off all push notifications on his phone. For him, it was too much stress at night. But some people like to be online and like to be reachable. And if that's what they want, then I say why not? Once again, it comes back to granting people autonomy and trusting them to get important things done at the pace that feels naturally sustainable and right. Of course, it's not always possible to get this kind of leeway in an organization. Sometimes, asking for the right to turn off your phone will get you reprimanded. In those cases, Louise often observes that her clients need to walk away and find another place to work. So much of this comes down to self-knowledge, she says, and knowing what your boundaries and limits are and leaving a job if it's not interesting to you or healthy. Because the laziness lie has so deeply permeated the workplace, sometimes the only way to break out of the hamster wheel of work-life interference is to leave the wheel entirely. That's scary and risky. Luis knows that firsthand. I myself was in a job once that really stressed me out, she says, and I had people close to me saying, you know, you've got to leave this job. I stayed on for another two years, and then I got axed. And it was only after I got axed from that job that I went, you know what? I'm going to open up my own private therapeutic practice, and I've never been happier. 
The laziness lie thrives on making us believe we have no options. By making us feel insecure and like we're never doing enough, it convinces us that we don't deserve to find another job or to leave an organization that mistreats its employees. By convincing us that we're lazy and not earning our keep, it pushes us into a constant state of feeling apologetic and paranoid. It's nearly impossible to negotiate for better treatment when we're trapped in the scarcity mindset. Often, we need a big wake-up call to realize that we do actually have the skills and drive needed to succeed somewhere that's less punishing. Annette, Caitlin, and Louise each had to develop a strong sense of self-knowledge and allow themselves to walk away from professional tracts that didn't line up with how they wanted to live. In Annette's case, her expertise as an industrial organizational psychologist helped her find a way out. For Caitlin, getting out of academia required meditating deeply on which work activities brought her joy and which left her feeling miserable. And in Luisa's case, it wasn't a matter of free choice, but of having the good luck of getting fired from a job that had been burning her out for years. Even though she was a trained counselor and worked with burned-out people herself, she needed that external push to break free. Of course, Luis is far from the only person who gets caught up in overwork like that. The laziness lie has taught us that work is the altar at which we must worship. It's scary to step away from constantly churning out productivity, particularly when we believe that our worth is determined by how much we do and what we accomplish. Chapter 4. Your Achievements Are Not Your Worth In 1973, investment banker and writer Andrew Tobias published his memoir, The Best Little Boy in the World. In it, Tobias describes his life as a closeted gay professional in the 1960s and 70s, struggling to build a successful life while hiding who he was. Tobias had known since he was a preteen that he was gay. Like many queer people of that era, he was deeply ashamed of it. In the book, he describes how he tried to make up for his gayness by being the perfect, most lovable, most accomplished young man he could be. He excelled in athletics, winning trophies and ribbons. He studied all weekend long, devoting energy that could have gone toward dating to earning excellent grades. He was a dutiful, clean-cut, polite son who honored his parents. Once he became an adult with a job, Tobias put his best little boy in the world energy toward pulling all-nighters at the office and turning work in days ahead of time, even when doing so was completely unnecessary. He describes one incident in which his manager asked him on Wednesday night to write a memo by Tuesday of the next week. Ha, huh, Tobias writes, I would stay at the office most of the night writing the memo, typing it, xeroxing it, binding it, and there it would be on his desk when he got in Thursday morning. That was as close as I could come to a sexual experience. Tobias was rightly terrified society would reject him for being gay, so he coped with that fear by striving to be accomplished and hardworking. No matter our orientation or status in society, we've all been pressured to win respect by racking up accolades in this way. The laziness lie tries to tell us that we must earn our right to be loved, or to even have a place in society, by putting our noses to the grindstone and doing a ton of hard work. 
The lie also implies that our intuition cannot be trusted. Our cravings for rest must be ignored. Our urges for pleasure, tenderness, and love must be written off as signs of weakness. Tobias believed the lie. So he tried to hide his true self behind a wall of awards. I'm living in a world that's very different from the one Tobias grew up in. Still, I see myself, and many of my friends, reflected in his desperation to please and overachieve. A lot of queer people still feel an immense pressure to be the best little person in the world. We accumulate achievements and accomplishments in the hopes that they will help us earn back the respect and love we lost by choosing to live openly as ourselves. We feel insecure about living on the fringes of society and recognize that what acceptance we do receive could be taken away at any moment. And so we work as hard as we possibly can to protect ourselves. We take second jobs, pull long hours, get reports in early, and take on responsibilities that exhaust us. Wanting to believe that our trophies, savings accounts, and satisfied managers will protect us from ignorance. Of course, it's not just queer people who try to self-protect through overachievement. Anyone who feels vulnerable in society can succumb to the pressure to live this way. Women and people of color are often told that they must go above and beyond the expectations set for white men if they want to have a prayer of success. People who grew up in poverty or who struggle with mental illness often feel similarly obligated to overachieve. Anyone who has been told repeatedly that they're not enough may be tempted by the laziness lie to strive endlessly for accomplishments and rewards. Our culture teaches us that if we achieve greatness, we may finally deserve to feel safe and at ease. A more contemporary and straight example of this phenomenon is the character Leslie Nope on NBC's Parks and Recreation. Many millennials adore Leslie's character, and it's easy to see why. She's chipper and upbeat, with an unending yen for political conquest. She overcomes government bureaucracy, partisan infighting, and her co-workers' bigotry and sexism through sheer determination and optimism. At the start of the series, Nope has a lowly position as the deputy director of her small city's Parks and Recreation Department. But as the series progresses, she ascends through the state government, eventually becoming governor of Indiana. She is relentless in her pursuit of success, winning countless political battles along the way. Fans love Parks and Rec because it portrays a hardworking, progressive woman winning at life, despite facing immense opposition. Yet, I've always found the show's inspiring messages to be kind of hollow. Leslie is a likable, spunky character, but she's also really pushy and single-minded. She cares a great deal about the environment, justice, and what's right. But to her close friends, she can be rude, and steamrolling. She often pushes people to help her accomplish her goals, ignoring their needs and priorities along the way. She doesn't take no for an answer and often forces her husband and best friend to invest time in her schemes even when they don't want to do it. She works herself to illness and even breaks out of the hospital when she's sick with the flu so she can continue going to her job. While the show and its fans celebrate Leslie for being a feminist icon, 
part of me sees her as a spokesperson for the laziness lie. She accomplishes great things, yes, but she does so by disrespecting her body's needs and ignoring the boundaries of her friends. Sadly, the show consistently rewards her for this success-obsessed behavior. There's never a moment when she has to learn to take things easy or when she develops an interest in activities outside of work. The show even goes out of its way to mock Leslie's husband, Ben, for getting into stop-motion animation when he's briefly unemployed. Ben's stop-motion films are amateurish. They're never going to win him any awards or help him secure a new job. So in the eyes of the show, and its characters, his interest in it is kind of pathetic. The mild depression he develops as a consequence of being unemployed is ridiculed, too. The show consistently implies that a life of hard work and achievement is superior in every way to a life that goes at a slower pace. Unfortunately, a lot of us still believe that's true in real life as well. On one level, being obsessed with achievement is entirely logical, particularly if you're on society's margins in some way. Being an overachiever can provide you with a buffer when things get rough. When I was growing up, my dad always had a side hustle in addition to his main full-time job. As I mentioned in this book's introduction, he had a physical disability and felt immense shame about it. So he hid it from his employer. He thought that if other people knew about his condition, they would reject him and see him as unfit to work. So he struggled to make up for his disability by being the hardest-working, busiest employee he could be. In addition to working third shift in a warehouse, he mowed lawns during the day to make extra cash. He was following in the footsteps of his dad, who had worked in a salt mine by day and fixed neighbors' cars in the evenings for extra money. The laziness lie romanticizes stories like these of hard-working men toiling away despite all the difficulties they have faced. But I saw firsthand what my dad's life was like, and my grandfather's. Often desperate, lonesome, and filled with pain, hard work didn't buy either of them safety the way they dreamed it would. Both men were in horrible health all their lives, and both died in their 50s. Rachel is a teacher and a transgender woman. Before she came out and started transitioning at work, she spent years earning teaching awards, racking up accolades, and taking on tons of after-hours responsibilities at her school. She knew she would need to fall back on her reputation as a hard worker when she finally started living as a woman. The second she came out, she was going to face a lot of bigotry disguised as scrutiny. As soon as I started coming to work as myself, in feminine clothing, she says, people started accusing me of being unprofessional and impossible to work with. And they were so cold to me. It was a night and day difference. As complaints began to roll in from intolerant parents and colleagues, Rachel had to point to her awards and sparkling performance reviews in order to protect herself. Her track record proved she wasn't the difficult, inappropriate person some were now claiming her to be. The adoration of her current and former students also helped buffer her against some of the criticism she started receiving. If Rachel hadn't been the best little girl in the world at her job, she would have wound up getting canned just for being herself. I've heard many people of color express a similar outlook on overwork. Many black parents teach their children that they must work twice as hard as white people. 
with the expectation that doing so will get them only half as far. If you are marginalized, you can't just be good. You have to be the best. But that striving for excellence comes with a hefty emotional toll. Constantly having to put on a performance of being diligent, motivated, and well-behaved can leave people feeling like their lives are inauthentic and don't reflect who they truly are. Achievements are fleeting things. They can never bring us true satisfaction. As soon as you've crossed the finish line and collected the trophy, the joy of running the race is over. There is no victory great enough to overcome the dictates of the laziness lie. In fact, the lie tells us that we must never be satisfied. We must keep running after new opportunities again and again, no matter how many victories lie behind us. In this way, being achievement-obsessed actually makes life less rewarding and enjoyable because we never get to truly savor or appreciate what we've done or where we've been. Achievement hunting can also make us competitive to a fault, seeing other people only as barriers to our next big success. Like Leslie Nope, we can become so intent on winning that we forget to take care of our friends or ourselves. We can even see the successes of our loved ones as threats, signs that they're more hardworking and lovable than we are. Our fear of being lazy can swallow up every source of pride and delight in our lives if we let it, until there's nothing left. The more we adopt an accomplishment-based mindset, the more we come to catalog, measure, and judge every single thing we do. Unfortunately, the digital age has done a lot to facilitate this obsession. Today, we can easily monitor how much exercise we get, how many likes our Instagram posts receive, how many books we've read this year, and how our performance compares to that of our friends. Every enjoyable use of our free time, whether it be cooking, crafting, or travel, can be documented, shared, and assessed relative to other people. The laziness lie has infected so much more than our careers. It has taught us to chase accomplishment in every imaginable realm, even those meant to be relaxing and non-productive. In the process, it has sapped the joy and leisure out of even the most pleasant and nourishing of activities. Your life gamified. Taylor started learning how to code this year. They heard there were a lot of good jobs available for people who know programming languages such as Python and Java, and they wanted a way to break out of their unrewarding office job. Life in the tech world sounded cushy and comfortable, and they wanted a bit of that for themselves. My friend Heather is totally scatterbrained, Taylor says. But she knows how to code, so she has a well-paying job and fancy free lunches at the office every day. Her workplace has a yoga room. God, I should never have majored in English. So Taylor started spending their evenings on a site called Code Academy, which offers self-paced lessons in a variety of programming languages. The Code Academy site is colorful and cheery. It's filled with short classes on a variety of programming-related topics. Each class features a mix of brief videos, interactive training modules, and online tests. Because the Code Academy site is slick and bright and stimulating, Taylor found it easy to return to every night after work. I used to spend my evenings getting into arguments with people online, Taylor says, half-joking. Now I just fire up the Code Academy site and plug away at a few lessons. 
It makes sense that Taylor learned to replace one kind of compulsive activity, arguing online with strangers, with another, completing short quizzes online. That's because the Code Academy site is designed to be as interesting, rewarding, and addictive as it can be. The site has a way of getting its hooks into you and making sure you keep coming back again and again. It breaks complex topics into a series of bite-sized units. After you finish a unit, you get a little badge. The more courses you complete, and the more often you use the site, the more you're rewarded. I sometimes use a similar site, DataCamp, in classes of mine that involve programming and statistics. My students find the site motivating because it makes learning seem like a game. The more mini-classes you take, the more experience points you earn, and there are daily activities you can complete that reward you for continued practice. A student's progress is linked to their social media accounts, so their friends, co-workers, and classmates can see how many achievement badges and points they've racked up, and, consequently, what a diligent, virtuous little worker bee they are. The foreign language learning app Duolingo operates in an incredibly similar way. There are small vocabulary and grammar exercises that you can complete each day. They take a variety of forms in order to keep you stimulated and engaged. In one exercise, you might be asked to drag and drop words together to create a sentence. In another, you're asked to speak into your phone's mic and provide the correct response to a question with the proper pronunciation. Each exercise feels and looks like a game. You get points for logging in every day. If you fail to open the app for a few days in a row, Duolingo's mascot, a cute little green owl, will send you notifications scolding you for not working hard enough. These sites and apps provide immediate gratification. They encourage habitual, regular use, just like video games do. And they scratch an itch that the laziness lie has left so many of us with, the longing to feel accomplished and worthy. By turning work into a game, they encourage us to cram more and more productive hours into our days and to feel as if every hour that we don't spend racking up little trophies and new marketable skills is a waste. In Taylor's case, learning how to code quickly began swallowing up a ton of free time. It left less space in their life for other passions like painting and writing. Writing just feels stressful right now, they tell me. It feels subordinate to the coding stuff. Taylor sometimes performs their writing at local bookstores and coffee shops, but in recent months, they haven't had the time or energy for it. They haven't been setting aside regular painting time the way they used to either. I've wondered aloud, many times at this point, if Taylor's code-learning schedule is grueling to the point of being unhealthy. Taylor seems kind of unsure about that. They'll bring up that it's only temporary. In a couple of years, they'll have enough skills to quit their day job. Until then, they just keep plugging along, racking up skills on the Code Academy site. They're trying to build a future for themselves. They're doing it the way the laziness lie taught them to, by putting their nose to the grindstone and trading free time for virtuous hard work. So many aspects of our lives have become gamified. Cooking blogs and YouTube channels have changed food preparation into performance. Twitter can make sharing jokes with your friends feel like a graded comedy class. Sites like Pinterest and Instagram have even turned craft-making competitive. I really love watching videos of people mixing glitter, paint, and food coloring into clear, glue-based putties and slimes. 
Something about watching people swirl bright colors and sequins into clear goop is just endlessly soothing to me. Yet the online community devoted to these craft videos, they call themselves slimers, is filled with backbiting, drama, and wrath. Popular accounts constantly fight with one another over who deserves credit for inventing a new slime formula or who was the first to film their videos in a particular style. What was meant to be a soothing, kind of silly activity has somehow transformed into a contentious, status-obsessed one. This gamification has transferred to how we monitor our wellness, too. Our exercise habits are tracked by our phones and watches and shared with all our friends. At any given time, I can open up the Fitbit app and see who in my life is on the leaderboard of physical activity, who has racked up the most steps. Then I can use that information to motivate myself to be more active, or I can use another person's achievements as a reason to belittle myself. Even if you are a relatively passive user of social media, you've probably felt the pull toward gamification in your life. Facebook and Instagram have tailored their algorithms in order to reward regular compulsive use of their platforms and to isolate and silence everyone who isn't a power user with a good sense of how to game the numbers. It's widely observed, for example, that if you don't open Facebook multiple times per day, the site seems to punish you by hiding your posts from many people on your friends list. Sometimes these apps won't immediately tell you about likes or comments that you've received until you've been an active enough user that day to have earned the right to be told about them. The only way to get a ton of likes or follows on these platforms is to spend hours on them liking other people's posts, leaving comments, and boosting engagement. The more you use these sites, the more popular you feel. Both Facebook and Instagram have started dabbling with hiding how many likes another person's posts have. Individual users, however, can still see their own likes and follower counts, and can still measure their success in terms of how many responses they get. In these ways, even the basic act of staying connected with other people has become a craved, achievement-obsessed process. People are constantly vying for attention, likes, followers, and clout. It saps the joy out of almost everything. How Achievement Hunting Ruins Experiences Dr. Fred Bryant is a researcher in the field of positive psychology, the science of optimism, happiness, and what helps people thrive. He's spent more than 40 years studying what a meaningful life looks like, a topic he understands on a very intuitive and personal level. Fred's just as cheery and sunny as you might expect a positive psychologist to be. He never stops grinning, and every word he utters sounds reflective and filled with wonder. So much of psychology is focused on treating negative symptoms, Fred says, like depression or anxiety. We act as though the opposite of being depressed is simply being not depressed. But that's not true. We can do more than just be not depressed. We can study what makes a person truly happy, what makes a person feel like their life is beautiful, that it has meaning. We can maximize the good things, not just downplay the bad. In Fred's work, finding joy and meaning all comes down to savoring. Savoring is the process of deeply and presently enjoying a positive experience. It occurs at three time points. First, 
when anticipating an upcoming event with excitement and optimism. Then, when fully appreciating the positive moment as it's happening. And finally, when looking back on the experience with a sense of reverence or gratitude after it's over. When a person savors, they relish the things they love and devote their full attention to experiencing them in a mindful, appreciative way. You can savor anything you find pleasant, whether it's a picturesque hike in a nature reserve, a cold, refreshing cocktail, or an especially challenging crossword puzzle. All you have to do is approach it with slow, mindful gratitude, rather than seeing it as an item on a to-do list that you have to check off. You can't be distracted and savor something, Fred explains. I could be eating the most delicious piece of pizza in the world, let's say a really amazing slice of Chicago deep dish, But if I'm grading my students' homework while I'm eating it, I might completely forget to appreciate how wonderful the pizza is. All of a sudden, I might look up and say, Hey, where did the pizza go? What? It's gone? Well, I guess I enjoyed it. I ate all of it really fast, but I don't even remember what eating it felt like. Fred tells me that a skilled savorer would not distract themselves from the pizza in his example. They would eat it languidly planning out each bite, maybe even saving the very best bite for last, so they have something to look forward to all the way to the end. Research by Fred and his colleagues has shown that savoring has many benefits. When a person engages in savoring, time seems to slow down. The details of the moment become lush and vivid. Happy moments feel happier when they are savored. And that happiness lasts longer after the experience is over. Savers also know how to look back on positive experiences and live them over again, which allows them to boost their happiness even when life isn't going so well. Perhaps as a result, frequent saverers often have much higher levels of life satisfaction and more positive moods compared to people who don't savor very much. Frequent saverers experience less depression. They cope with issues such as aging and declining health far better than non-saverers. People suffering from chronic pain, heart disease, and cancer experience better long-term health outcomes if they know how to savor the good things in life. And they find their illnesses less depressing and stressful as well. Since happiness generally increases a person's odds of being healthy, savoring can play a role in extending one's lifespan and warding off illness. The best thing about savoring is that anyone can learn how to do it. Fred and his colleagues have consistently found that it's a skill that can be learned. There are mental strategies a person can practice in order to boost their savoring ability. Just as there are negative, happiness-crushing strategies that a person can learn to avoid. Unfortunately, in a world beholden to the laziness lie, it's those negative thought patterns that are far more common. The opposite of savoring is dampening. Dampening occurs when we suck the life out of a positive experience by distracting ourselves from it, worrying about the future, or focusing on small imperfections that we ought to just ignore. Think of Debbie Downer from the famous Saturday Night Live sketch, who ruins a birthday party by talking about natural disasters and lecturing everyone about how unhealthy birthday cake is. Debbie is a master at dampening a good mood. 
because she knows how to draw attention away from mindfully savoring the things that make people happy. And she's far from the only one who's impulsively negative in that way. Research has uncovered four mental habits that tend to dampen a person's happiness and make them more miserable. These four habits are strongly encouraged by the laziness lie. Mental habits that dampen happiness. Suppression, or hiding or repressing positive feelings due to shyness, modesty, or fear. Distraction, ignoring the joy of the moment and concerning yourself with other things. Fault-finding, or disregarding the positive side of an experience and focusing on what's lacking or could be better. And negative mental time travel, anticipating negative events that could happen in the future or reminiscing about painful experiences in the past. Consider for a moment the many ways in which the laziness lie teaches us to dampen our happiness. By discouraging us from showing any signs of weakness or vulnerability, the laziness lie teaches us to engage in suppression, the hiding of signs of happiness in order to appear serious or mature. The laziness lie also loves keeping us distracted. As overachieving workaholics, we're all expected to multitask all day long, never taking a moment to fully luxuriate in a good meal, a golden sunset, or a leisurely walk around the block. Because the laziness lie encourages perfectionism, it makes many of us into expert fault finders as well. We set unrealistically high standards of productivity and quality for ourselves, and then pick ourselves apart for coming up short. Finally, the laziness lie trains all of us to be negative mental time travelers, forever fearing the future and planning for worst-case scenarios, refusing to appreciate what we have because we're so anxious about what comes next. This is what our cultural obsession with achievement hunting has done to us. Even something that ought to be pleasurable, like taking a vacation or winning an award, becomes a new obligation to measure document, and share with the world via social media. Once the experience is over, the laziness lie expects us to forget about it and speed ahead to the next credential, the next Instagrammable moment, the next big way to make productive use of our time. This keeps us from ever living in the moment or taking genuine pride in the things we've done. My partner Nick once had a co-worker who was a stand-up comedian. The guy was absolutely obsessed with how well his jokes did on social media. Every morning, he'd post a new joke to Facebook and Twitter, then compulsively check his notifications for an hour to see how well the joke had done. His only benchmark for whether a joke was any good was if it got 100 likes within the first hour. If it didn't hit that mark, it was a failure. The guy didn't seem to ask himself if he actually liked the jokes he was posting, or to view writing them as the creative craft it was. He couldn't take any pride or enjoyment in what he was doing. All he had was a goal to obsess over, an achievement that he had to hit every day. Research shows that when we're stressed and caught up in routines, we experience time as moving more quickly. Weeks, months, or even years can all blend together in a haze of anxiety and obligation and we may be left with very few unique, cherished memories to look back on. You can't savor your life or even remember it in much detail if your existence is nothing but a series of obligations you have to joylessly meet. 
Thankfully, there are steps we can take to break out of our overachieving patterns. How to reframe your life's value. Life ought to be about so much more than being productive and impressing other people, chasing obsessively after goals and forever trying to earn social approval will never bring us satisfaction. In fact, it can drain us of our ability to appreciate the good things in life. Instead, we have to take a step back, reconsider our values, and learn to see our lives as having innate worth, no matter what we do or don't accomplish. Changing our mindset in this way is hard, especially after years of the laziness lies indoctrination. There are, however, some research-supported strategies we can follow to help us get there. Some of these strategies include learning how to savor, making time for awe, and regularly trying something we're very, very bad at. Learn to savor. We've already taken a look at the mental habits that dampen people's happiness levels. Now it's time to look at the flip side, the ways of thinking that can actually help us appreciate and amplify feelings of joy. Mental habits that help us savor happiness. Behavioral displays, or showing happiness in our behavior, smiling, singing, jumping for joy, flapping our hands excitedly, etc. Being present or living in the present moment, focusing on the experience as it's happening, pushing distractions away and being mindful. Capitalizing, or communicating about a positive experience with other people, celebrating an event, sharing good news with other people, getting other people excited. And positive mental time travel. Reflecting on happy memories or reminding people of a pleasant shared past. Planning and anticipating desired future events. You can see how each of these mental habits is the mirror image of the dampening habits. The first one, behavioral displays, suggests that if you want to be happy and appreciate your life, you should show your joy when you're feeling it. As someone who loves to flap my hands frantically when I'm excited and who lives to coo and squeal obnoxiously whenever I see a puppy, this is very good news. Another way to increase our happiness is to be fully present in life's pleasurable moments. This means putting down distractions, not trying to multitask, and really drinking in the details of a good experience. One way I've incorporated this into my own life is by taking a real lunch break every day. I've always been tempted to use my lunchtime productively, answering emails while I cram a burrito into my mouth. But doing that just leaves me stressed and shocked at how quickly time has flown by. So instead, I try to make myself walk away from my computer, find a nice spot outside, and force myself to eat slowly, tasting everything, watching people walk by and enjoying the cool breeze that comes off Lake Michigan. Next, research shows we can get more happiness out of life by capitalizing on good experiences. In other words, by telling people about good things that have happened and making the time to publicly celebrate. Many of us have been taught that it's immodest to brag about our accomplishments and that instead we should just keep on grinding along, working hard without expecting much of a reward for it. Instead, research suggests that there is value in highlighting the things we're proud of. If we're lucky, we can even boost the moods of people we share our good news with. 
Research shows that people like to bask in the glory of their friends' and family's victories and feel more pride in themselves when they have successful, happy friends. The final healthy mental habit to practice is positive mental time travel. This, of course, is the opposite of constantly fretting about the future or dwelling on sad moments in the past. Expert savorers know how to reminisce about good experiences. They also expect to have lots of new joyful experiences in the future. So their lives seem to be filled with happiness, anticipation, and hope. When he's not doing psychological research, Fred Bryant loves climbing mountains. He regularly goes climbing with two friends who perfectly illustrate what positive mental time travel looks like. One guy I climb mountains with is always reminding us of climbs that we did in the past, Fred says. He'll call me up and say, Did you know that two years ago on this day, we were on top of Mount Rainier? And he'll help me remember all these amazing things that we did that day. Another guy on my team, he's the planner. He's always looking ahead to the next climb, saying, Oh, here's what we have to look forward to. Here's what we're going to do. And he gets us all excited about what's to come. If you've been taught all your life to focus on accomplishments and to worry about the future, it will be hard to adopt these mental habits at first. But, as Fred keeps reassuring me, very few people are naturally good at them. Most savers got that way over time, by training themselves to focus on drinking in the positives. It's similar to musical talent, he tells me. Sure, some people naturally have a good ear, but everyone who plays an instrument has to practice. Savoring is the same. You have to work at it, and then you can get better at it. Make time for awe. Another way to curb an achievement obsession is to consciously find time to experience awe. Awe occurs when we encounter something completely new or deeply inspiring, such as a sparkling blue sea, a, a rich green forest, or an amazing vocal performance at a concert. Awe reminds us of the universe's largeness and our own smallness in a way that feels exhilarating and soothing rather than threatening. When we feel awe, all our individual problems and worries can seem to drop away, because the vast beauty around us puts everything in perspective. Awe is also a fantastic burnout buster. For people in the burnout-prone helping professions, such as nursing and social work, making time for awe is an invaluable piece of self-care. Most of us think of self-care as involving something like getting a massage, buying a new outfit, or taking a warm bubble bath. Those forms of self-care are the easiest to market and to make a profit from, so it's no wonder they're the most well-known. However, pampering is just one form self-care can take. Awe is a much deeper and more restorative form of self-care because it has a spiritual component. Even if you aren't religious at all, you can feel a sense of greater purpose, a connection with nature, or a deep bond with all of humanity by seeking out moments of awe and wonder. So how do you go about getting awestruck? Novelty and wonder are the keys. Try habitually putting yourself into new situations or exposing yourself to novel, interesting stimuli. There are a lot of ways to go about this. Here are some ideas. Visit a new city with no agenda but to explore it. 
Take a new route to work or walk down unfamiliar side streets in your neighborhood. Study a subject you know absolutely nothing about. Look closely at an object and consider how many people were involved in creating it and getting it to where it is now. Attend a festival, meetup, or workshop for people who are passionate about an activity you know nothing about. Try to appreciate an art form you've never spent much time with before. Poetry, short film, sculpture, dance, mashup music, etc. Ask a friend or coworker to tell you about a subject that excites them. Really listen and try to learn something from them. An awe-filled life is much easier to appreciate. Unfamiliar places and experiences take longer for our brains to process, which actually creates the illusion that time is slowing down. This is part of why the drive to a new place always seems to take longer than the drive home. When all our senses are focused on taking in the details of a novel experience, it's easier to forget our daily obligations and our worries about the future, and to remember that the world is large and filled with possibility. Experiencing awe also uses mental processes that are very similar to those savoring uses, so it's great practice for those hoping to make savoring a regular habit. Do something you're bad at. If you're a habitual overachiever and trophy hoarder, odds are you absolutely loathe doing things you're bad at. This is a particularly common problem for people who were gifted students in school, or who were constantly told as children that they were smart. When you've spent your whole life chasing praise for being naturally good at things, it's deeply unpleasant to do anything badly. Doing something poorly is a great way to break free from the laziness lie. When we accept failure, we learn that our lives have meaning regardless of what we can or can't do. When we pursue an activity we can't ever possibly succeed at, we force ourselves to learn how to enjoy the process rather than the end product. Getting comfortable wasting our time on something unproductive and unsuccessful frees us up to choose our own goals and priorities instead of checking off the boxes society has laid out for us. In the book The Queer Art of Failure, Jack Halberstam suggests that failing at something that society has told us to do can be a revolutionary act. When we fail, we find ourselves pushing back against the pressure to generate value for other people, and that changes everything. Failure quietly loses, Halberstam writes, and in losing, it imagines other goals for life, for love, for art, and for being. In other words, when we fail, we become free to choose what we want our actual goals and priorities to be rather than following the expectations of others. The laziness lie wants us to keep being productive in areas where we're skilled. So when we choose to stick with an activity we're horrible at, we are able to make a choice motivated by genuine love rather than by the external pressure to succeed. I've always had skills that other people see as valuable. Number crunching skills, teaching skills, even my ability to write. In the past year, I've made regular time each week to do something I truly suck at and will always suck at, lifting weights. I'm physically weak and uncoordinated, so I avoided going to the gym for years because I knew I'd be just awful at it. But this year, 
I found myself compelled to learn how to use weight machines. I'd started learning to take better care of my health, and I thought it might be kind of fun to try getting strong. So I started working at it slowly, three or four days a week. It's been oddly refreshing, learning a skill that I will never excel at or impress somebody with, sitting at the weight machines, noticing that I can lift just a tiny bit more weight today than I was able to a month ago. I feel a small swell of pride. I'm never going to be ripped or especially strong, but I've learned how to stick with something that absolutely terrifies me and to get comfortable with not being the best. Sometimes, I'm even a bit awed at how far I've come and what my body is capable of. Learning to document your life less. Joan was almost internet famous. She's always been very well-read and incredibly witty, and for years she used to post a lot of droll, funny observations about current events and pop culture on Twitter and Tumblr. Sometimes, when the social media stars aligned, those posts would blow up, getting her hundreds of thousands of responses. People even made fan art based on ideas Joan had shared online. The positive feedback was addictive. Sometimes the quest for viral success encouraged Joan to behave in ways that weren't healthy for her. Many of Joan's most popular posts were about some of the darkest and bleakest experiences in her life. She struggled for years with depression and social isolation, growing up in poverty in rural Canada. In her youth, she had a very hard time connecting with the people in her small town, who were mostly straight and didn't share her interest in things like celebrity culture and old Hollywood. When she posted dark jokes about how it felt to be depressed and obsessed with topics other people found strange, they went viral a lot of the time. Alienated internet nerds all around the world found they could relate to Joan. But Joan didn't really get anything out of it. In some ways, I feel that the online community was exploiting my poor mental health at the time for content, she says. I could certainly be witty and acerbic about my trauma, but at what cost? For Joan, everything changed when she finally had the chance to get paid for her writing. One of her posts went more than just viral. It developed into a concept for a feature film. All of a sudden, Joan was in talks with film producers and a well-known director who wanted to take a concept of hers and transform it into a major project. After years of throwing good ideas out into the internet ether, and receiving only a few thousand likes in return, Joan was finally getting recognized for her effort. That really changed her priorities. When I realized just how much my thoughts and ideas were worth, I realized I needed to stop giving them away for free, Joan says. The immediate dopamine hit of several thousand likes and shares, or even an extremely viral post, is nothing compared to the validation of getting compensated. Joan's behavior shifted almost immediately. She began taking screenwriting classes and worked to build a creative portfolio that would help her pursue a career in media. She started selling her writing instead of giving it away for free online. And she stopped spending so much time chasing virality and high follower counts. Those bon mots and witticisms feel very good to write, are easy to write, and will get one a lot of traction. But a full-length project just feels more satisfying, she says. 
I had to take a step back and sacrifice the immediate rush of virality and likes for the sustained feeling of accomplishment that comes from a serious, larger project. Today, Joan shares very little of her life online. She doesn't post about her trauma, and she doesn't waste good joke ideas on Twitter posts. Instead, she saves them for screenplays, which take more time to craft, but pay off far more. The more she disconnects from the competitive, achievement-obsessed world of social media, the more Joan says she's been able to enjoy her life. Her mental health has improved a great deal. She has far more real-life friends, and she's gotten sober. It's not that quitting the internet magically caused her to become healthier. Rather, when Joan stopped focusing on instant gratification and chasing achievements via the internet, she started having more time to focus on people who actually cared about her and artistic pursuits that really mattered. Instead of looking to her painful memories as a source of potential productivity and content, she worked on healing those wounds instead. In recent years, Joan has started attending regular meetings of the Religious Society of Friends, also known as the Quakers. It's fitting that someone who learned to disconnect from the stimulus overload of the Internet now spends one morning per week sitting in contemplative silence with strangers. In a friends meeting, there's no content being provided by anyone, not even a sermon given by a pastor. There's no pressure to speak, no social competition for attention or approval. The community simply joins together and sits in silence, except for those rare, meaningful moments when someone truly feels moved to speak. Digital tools have made life much easier, but they've also left us with an endless array of accounts to maintain and notifications to worry about. Social media apps have created intense pressure to mine every life experience for achievement points, turning joy into clout. Nearly every activity in our lives has become something to document, measure, and broadcast our success in, despite the fact that a mountain of evidence suggests such obsessive recording and sharing can impair or erode our mental health. Most of us won't be able to completely go off the grid. Even if we fantasize about chucking our phones out the window, many of us need digital tools to stay organized and connected. But that doesn't mean we have to be fully invested in gamifying our lives. Like Joan, we can work to set reasonable, practical boundaries on how we interact with the digital realm. By reframing our approach to using these tools, we can reorient our lives and detach from the idea that our productivity defines our worth. Have phone-free time periods. When our phones are always easily within our grasp, we feel the urge to check them obsessively. This is by design. Most apps have been carefully developed to be as addictive and alluring as possible. With numerous notifications, rewards for frequent use, and hard-to-navigate algorithms that keep users refreshing the site every few minutes in search of new content. On top of that, the fear of missing out on important messages, event invitations, and other opportunities keeps us from putting down our devices and ever truly being idle or lazy. Because smartphones give us access to an entire world of information, they make us feel powerful when we use them. Some research shows that when you take a person's phone away, they feel unsafe and may even experience a drop in self-esteem because of it. 
this fear of powerlessness makes it even harder to disconnect. Despite how much we all rely on our phones, however, there's a growing movement toward taking a digital Sabbath. A digital Sabbath works exactly the way you'd expect. You set aside at least one day per week during which you ignore all your devices and notifications. Most people who practice the digital Sabbath set aside a weekend day to fully detach. But it's possible to go offline during the week, too. Some organizations have even begun encouraging it, because data shows that constantly checking email and Slack messages distracts employees and stresses them out. For many people, however, going phone-free for a full day just isn't practical or appealing. If that's the case, you can still set boundaries, such as refusing to answer emails or check notifications after a certain hour of the night. As Marcus Nini mentioned in Chapter 3, his organization's employees are free to stop answering emails at whatever time of the evening they prefer. You can also put limits on what kinds of internet use you'll engage in and at what times of day. Monica has a second phone with no SIM card in it, which she uses for browsing the internet at night. She's an avid hiker and naturalist, and in the evenings, she likes to go online and research local flora and fauna and plan her next hike. In the past, this relaxing experience was ruined by constant notifications and messages. A disconnected phone allows her to get the best of the internet without any of the stress. For other people, switching from a bright screen to a Kindle or other e-ink device can be a great way to remain connected to a wealth of information without getting sensory or information overload. Turn off the notifications and activity trackers. The vast majority of reminders and notifications we receive from our phones are not urgent. That Facebook message from your cousin doesn't have to be answered immediately. The Duolingo owl won't murder you in your sleep if you forget to practice Spanish vocabulary today. When you are caught up in the heat of the moment and your phone is constantly blowing up with noisy, bright beacons of stress and obligation, those facts are easy to forget. Research shows that frequent phone notifications can make people more distractible and hyperactive. Compulsive smartphone use can also exacerbate anxiety and depressive symptoms if a person is already at risk for those mental illnesses. The best way to protect yourself is to get rid of the temptation to constantly check notifications by turning those annoying reminders off. You can also identify which applications cause you the most guilt and stress, and then work to end your reliance on them. Some organizational apps improve our lives in real ways. The Calendar app on my phone, for example, makes keeping appointments less stressful for me, not more. On the flip side, I decided a few months ago to delete the Fitbit app because I realized that monitoring my sleep, daily steps, and exercise levels just made me feel anxious. By tracking my physical activity and sharing it with the world, I felt obligated to always achieve the app's recommended 10,000 steps per day. When life got in the way, I felt guilty. The solution was simple. The Fitbit app had to go. Focus on process not product. Life has become so intensely gamified that it's easy to think of every activity as a competition. Did today's selfie get more likes than yesterday's? Did I review more books on Goodreads this year than last year? Am I using my free time more virtuously than all my friends are? 
This mindset breeds insecurity and dissatisfaction. To break out of it, we have to treat self-improvement and growth as pleasurable, gradual processes, not goals that we will ever complete. For Joan, this meant completely changing how she approaches creativity and writing. In the past, she fixated on how well her posts did on social media. It was easy to compare herself to other internet personalities and focus on the times when her success didn't measure up to somebody else's. She was caught in a hamster wheel of hunting for achievements. The only way for her to move forward was by stepping off it. Today, almost all of Joan's creative work happens in private. She spends her evenings writing. This work doesn't provide the instant gratification that posting jokes on Twitter does. It's slow and gradual. That also means there's no external pressure to push an idea out into the world before it's ready. The long-term payoff is immense. Even if she's no longer getting the short-term dopamine hit of a few retweets. Psychological research shows that it's far healthier to focus on personal growth rather than competition with other people. It's exhausting to be constantly vying to be the very best, the most productive, the most skillful, the person with the most likes. The laziness lie loves keeping us insecure because it makes us easy to exploit. If I want to be the very best, I'm never going to stop to take a breather because there will always be someone out there who is beating me in some way. This is a damaging worldview. It leaves no room for healing, experimentation, or quiet, unimpressive, reflective moments. When we choose to feel compassion toward ourselves and stop expecting ourselves to be the very best, we can find joy in all kinds of slow, unproductive activities. Fred Bryant might be a very accomplished psychological researcher, but his true passion is climbing mountains. As you might imagine, reaching the top of the mountain isn't his favorite part. It's making steady progress toward the summit, enjoying the majesty of nature along with his closest friends. You put so much effort into climbing the mountain, all for what amounts to just a few minutes at the top of the summit, Fred says to me, smiling. But it's not a race to get to the top. It's a process an experience that you're meant to savor and enjoy. I love the journey toward the top of the mountain. I'm not there just to be at the very top. That's what savoring is all about to me. The phrase is, stop and smell the roses, not run through the field trying to smell as many roses as you can as quickly as possible. Chapter 5 you don't have to be an expert in everything. I'm fighting with a stranger on the internet again, Noah messaged me one night. Please tell me to stop. It's a waste of time and you should stop, I told him, for perhaps the fiftieth time. They're never going to listen, and you're just going to make yourself upset. Noah is an engineer and a voracious reader, so he's accumulated a lot of knowledge about a variety of topics. He's also an avid follower of the news. On the internet, being knowledgeable and well-read can be a liability just as often as an advantage. It gives you a lot to be anxious and frustrated about. There's too much ignorance out there, too many fights you could potentially have. Yet Noah tries to fight all of them. You're right, Noah messaged back. This guy is never going to listen. 
But he's saying that MMR vaccines have mercury in them. I can't believe there are still people who believe this shit. Just like that, Noah was back down the rabbit hole, recounting every ignorant and asinine thing the other guy had said to him over the course of the two hours that they'd been fighting. Noah had also spent that time looking up medical studies that proved he was right and sending them to his opponent. He tried asking thought-provoking questions of the man. Then he tried getting more aggressive and confrontational. None of it, of course, was working at all. I should walk away, Noah said. I've said everything I can say. Yup, I messaged back as I was settling into bed. An hour later, Noah messaged me again. I just wrote a 1,500-word rant explaining how the whole anti-vaccine movement is rooted in the fear of kids having disabilities. Did I just completely waste my time? Noah probably had just wasted his time. But I said something that was also likely to be true. It's possible someone else will read the whole fight and learn something from it. I hope so, he said seeming kind of dejected. I turned my phone off, rolled over, and went to sleep, knowing that within a few weeks, Noah would message me again about another internet fight that he was swept up into. Or I'd do the same thing to him. Noah, like a lot of people, has compulsive internet habits. He gets into needless fights with people he'll never be able to persuade. He obsesses over social problems he doesn't have the power to solve, as if worrying were a productive form of activism. He's struggled with an addiction to reading the news, cramming his brain with as much upsetting information as he possibly can. Noah has a to-read list that is staggeringly long. When I told him about a book that I was really enjoying, Noah whipped out his phone, opened his notes app, scrolled for what felt like five solid minutes, and then added the book to the end of the list. I marveled at how long his list was and how it spanned a variety of topics, from anthropology to marine biology to personal finance to feminism. When he visits people's homes, Noah scans the host's bookshelves, looking for enticing titles to add to his list. No matter the topic of conversation, he always has at least one or two books to recommend on the subject. Sometimes titles he's actually gotten around to reading, sometimes not. Like so many overextended people I've spoken to, Noah comes from a working-class background. He grew up poor in a rundown area of Detroit. College was not guaranteed to him, nor was a future with strong career prospects. His parents often struggled to get by. That seems to have given Noah a higher-than-average motivation to avoid laziness in every possible realm of his life. No matter how exhausting his day job as an engineer can be, he's always committing to doing more beyond that. He's studied multiple languages and traveled abroad to practice his conversational Yiddish and Hebrew. He knows a ton about neuroscience for someone who's never taken a class on the subject. He follows the news on countless platforms. He strives in every way to be informed, self-educated, and politically aware. Noah's computer used to regularly crash from the burden of keeping all his browser tabs open. He's an absolute tab hoarder. The worst one I've ever seen. He always keeps dozens and dozens open at once. News articles, op-eds, scientific reports, essays, Reddit threads, email chains, and more. 
some of which Noah's been meaning to read for weeks or even months. He works full-time and has a two-hour commute to work each day, so he never has time to make a real dent in the tabs. I suspect that even if he did find the time, he'd spend half of it reading and half of it finding piles and piles of new sites to add to his list. I've been meaning to read an article about that, is his constant refrain. Here, let me send it to you. A few years ago, I had to ban myself from a Facebook group Noah had created because he was constantly sharing articles with everyone in the group, often multiple times per day. It annoyed me and stressed me out. I think it probably hurt Noah's feelings that I did that. Or maybe it gave him the impression that I don't care about the world as deeply as he did. But I just had to do it. I was already drowning in information. I couldn't let another information addict pull me down even deeper. I think that from Noah's perspective, though, he thought he was doing a vital public service. It's hard to know how much Noah's reading has enriched his life, and how much it's distracted from it. He has a lot of anxiety about the future, and at times reading the news seems only to stoke those flames. He's educated and wise, and the breadth of his knowledge helps him see how interconnected many social problems are. His intelligence and passion are beautiful qualities but they also leave him feeling responsible for educating people and correcting every bit of ignorance he sees. I know how stressful that compulsion can be, because I regularly get swept up in the exact same thing. The teacher in me is always trying to educate people, even when it's clear a person doesn't want to be reached. Nobody can be an expert in everything. There are too many issues to care about, too many rapidly developing news stories to follow religiously. We have access to more knowledge than any other humans in history. As a result, most of us are profoundly overwhelmed with what we know. We're consumed with guilt over the things we feel we should be learning more about but can't find the time to. Knowledge can be empowering, and access to the internet has enriched countless lives. The laziness lie tells us that we should take full advantage of the privileges of the internet by forever learning more and more. It sees no limit to how much information a person ought to consume, never acknowledges the emotional and psychological cost of cramming facts into our brains. If we aren't using the wealth of available data to make ourselves more productive and useful to society, what's the point of having it? Well, access to information is a privilege it's also a burden. This is especially true when we treat being well-read as an obligation that can't be escaped. Constant exposure to upsetting news can be traumatic. An unending flow of information makes it hard to pause and reflect on anything you've learned. At some point, even the most voracious of readers needs to pull the plug and stop the constant drip of facts, figures, and meaningless internet fights. We're living in an era of information overload and the solution is not to learn more, but to step back and consume a smaller amount of data in a more meaningful way. The Information Overload Era As human beings have continued to scientifically advance and collect more and more information about the nature of our world, it has become harder and harder to educate the public about all of it. Modern life is incredibly complex, and in order to navigate it well, a person has to be well-informed on a variety of topics and disciplines. Over time, the bar for what counts as well-informed 
has steadily risen higher and higher, making it increasingly difficult for anyone to remain caught up. A good illustration of this is how higher education has evolved over time. Before the 1800s, there was no such thing as a college major. Back then, all students were expected to take courses in all topics. A college degree meant you were very well educated in all the liberal arts, writing, philosophy, music, math, astronomy, and more. By the mid-1800s, however, there was simply too much information available for that to be a reasonable expectation anymore. So the idea of majoring was developed. Instead of trying to learn about everything, a student could choose a subject, study it deeply, and become a specialist. Unfortunately, as human knowledge has expanded even more, many subjects have gotten too dense for a person to fully comprehend them in just four years of study. Now, if you want to study a subject such as psychology deeply, you need a master's degree or a PhD, not a bachelor's degree. In many fields, employers have started to treat advanced degrees as the new minimum level of education required, because an undergraduate major just doesn't cover enough of the available knowledge base. In academia, we often say a master's is the new bachelor's. As a professor, I find this steady creep of degree inflation really distressing. In theory, it ought to be good that humanity has access to so much wisdom. Instead, being well-educated is treated as a credential that a person must earn in order to have promising career options. Unfortunately, getting that credential is increasingly expensive and time-consuming. A college education used to open a lot of doors for people, especially those from poor or otherwise marginalized backgrounds. Now, becoming sufficiently educated has become a massive source of pressure and an immense financial strain. It doesn't help that most universities view their master's degree programs as their biggest cash cows. When it comes to information overload, college is just one piece of the puzzle. Data and knowledge sharing has permeated every waking hour of our lives, whether we're in school or not. Each of us is absolutely inundated with facts, opinions, and meaningless internet fights every single time we unlock our phones. Instead of liberating us, this knowledge is leaving many of us distracted and distressed. Rick knows that he should quit using Twitter. He's been saying as much for years. It's just a sea of bad superficial takes, he tells me. No matter who I follow, my feed ends up being a bunch of left-leaning comedians trying to find the best joke they can make about whatever horrible thing is happening in the world. Nobody wants to have a meaningful conversation about anything. If you try to insert any nuance, they're hostile to it. Still, he finds the social media site hard to quit. I check Twitter all day, he says, and it fills me with despair, like, every single time. It's so easy to hop onto Twitter while you're waiting in line at the grocery store or bored with whatever TV show you're watching. Every time you refresh it, there's tons of new content, all of it presented in bite-sized packages that the mind can easily digest. There's so much to read and engage with, but because tweets are so short and Twitter conversations move at such a fast pace, most of that engagement is shallow and ultimately unsatisfying. It's no wonder Rick has a compulsive relationship to the platform. It's basically an attention slot machine that never pays out. The internet has revolutionized how we share and access information. 
It has empowered people throughout the world, giving them access to knowledge that used to be hidden away in universities and libraries. It's raised public awareness of social justice issues and helped people at society's fringes to find community and understanding. I never would have realized I was transgender if it weren't for online communities, where trans people shared their experiences. Hell, if it weren't for the internet and online writing platforms like WordPress and Medium, I wouldn't ever have become an author. I understand how the internet can change lives for the better. But because the internet has made it so easy to share information, it has also created an impossibly large deluge of data, and each of us is absolutely drowning in it. The volume of knowledge available on the internet is expanding at a staggering rate. According to IBM, 2.5 quintillion bytes of data are added every single day. The rate of data growth increases further every year. 90% of the information currently available on the internet was added in the past two years. The volume of unique information the average person encounters in a day is approximately five times what the average person encountered in 1986. It's an unbelievable amount to process. And every projection suggests it's only going to get worse. Unfortunately, a lot of the information that gets thrown in our faces each day is useless, redundant, or damaging. The internet is awash in comment sections and reply chains where people fight endless battles that go nowhere. Beyond that, much of the data that gets posted each day is junk data, random musings, bad jokes, advertisements, self-promotions, and complicated reactions to and critiques of other posts that make no sense without proper context. There's no point in exposing ourselves to that much noise. Yet encountering it and trying to filter through it is pretty much unavoidable. In addition to all that relatively benign junk, there's also actively dangerous data being shared. Violent, fascist rhetoric, hate speech, intentional misinformation, and even traumatic images of death and national tragedy. Though most social media sites have entire teams dedicated to filtering and deleting objectionable and traumatic material, there's just too much of it being posted for it to be completely removed. Some awful images and hateful writing inevitably slip through the cracks, forcing us to figure out how to respond. The redundancy of information on the internet is also a problem. Many of us feel the need to help address a pressing social problem or emergency by signal-boosting posts sharing them widely with our networks. This desire to educate other people is often very useful, but it can also cause misinformation or panic. When I share a warning about how long viral particles remain alive on a surface, such as a kitchen counter, am I helping to save a random friend from getting ill? Or am I filling my friend's social media feeds with alarming information they've likely already seen? Am I providing enough context on what that fact means? so a person knows what to do with the information? Or am I just freaking people out? Most of the time, it's hard to tell which information is worth sharing and which is either faulty or has already been viewed dozens of times. It takes a ton of effort to sift through all this data, throwing away the misinformation, nonsense, and hate, and making time for useful facts and meaningful reflections. It's really easy to get caught up in correcting all the distortions and fighting all the bigots you encounter along the way. 
It's no wonder people like Noah and Rick get sucked into spending way more time online than is good for them. Many of us feel an immense internal pressure to stay plugged in and up to date. News stories develop at an unprecedented pace. A story can break, spark conversation, provoke a response, and then be entirely disproven all within a few hours. If you don't stay online checking for updates, you risk missing out on the actual truth. Every day, there are new attacks on the rights of transgender people, women, and immigrants. And that news is usually served with a side of terrifying facts about climate change, institutional racism, pandemic spread, or gun violence. In this context, turning off our phones and ignoring the news can seem socially irresponsible. Yet, obsessively overloading our senses with disturbing facts and disgusting propaganda isn't doing any good either. According to a survey by the American Psychological Association, 95% of Americans say that they try to stay up to date on the news. However, 56% of them also say that following the news causes them significant stress. It's clear that the laziness lie has permeated our approach to knowledge and information. No matter how desperately we want to remain knowledgeable, and no matter how strongly we feel a responsibility to stay connected, the truth of the matter is plain. We're taking in too much data. And it's doing us serious harm. How Information Overload Affects Our Health After the 2016 presidential election, Noah and I started exchanging long, anxious emails about politics. The constant onslaught of frightening news was taking a real, observable, physical toll on each of us. And it wasn't pretty. I'm pants-shittingly nervous, I wrote to him in an email after Betsy DeVos was named Secretary of Education. I literally keep having nervous shits. I've also been stress-pooping a lot, Noah wrote back after Trump's travel ban was announced. I keep feeling totally overwhelmed. In our emails to each other, Noah and I speculated that we shouldn't be reading the news as often as we were. Yet, given the circumstances, unplugging was pretty damn hard. I couldn't look away. I was doing myself real damage, flooding my nervous system with constant alarm, but it felt necessary and morally just for me to do so. Between teaching classes, I'd open up news and activist sites, call my senators, and make tons of frantic social media posts sounding the alarm bell about everything bad that was happening. Of course, I was far from alone. According to the American Psychological Association, during that period, two-thirds of Americans reported that the future of the nation was the largest source of stress in their lives. That percentage was at an all-time high. More people were stressed by the state of the nation than they were by their own finances or jobs. Compulsive, anxiety-fueled news reading only got worse in 2020 with the spread of the coronavirus leaving people all around the world locked indoors. As infections rose exponentially and local and national governments scrambled to respond, staying online for updates no longer felt optional. It was essential if you wanted to know what your risks were and whether you were legally permitted to leave the house or not. Staying well-informed was a civic duty, but it was also a deep torment. One therapist that I spoke to, Sharon Glassburn, of Curiosity Counseling, told me that many of her clients struggle with limiting their news intake. 
For many of them, upsetting political news is a highly personal threat, and one they can't easily escape. I see it a lot, she says. The political situation is so urgent, and a lot of things that are happening are traumatic. And as a therapist, I want to validate clients who are caught up in the situation that they can't control. If you're a person of color, a sexual assault survivor, an LGBTQ plus person, or an immigrant, you probably haven't been able to escape worrisome news for years at this point. It's hard to disengage, because each frightening development has a palpable impact on your life. You can't control that or ignore it. However, Sharon warns that fixating on things we can't control can leave us feeling like we have zero agency in our lives. That outlook is never healthy. I have to strike a balance between affirming that there are situations that a client can't control and problems that are systemic, Sharon says, and helping them look to the factors that they can control. Because constantly focusing on massive injustice that you can't change is very unempowering. In fact, a loss of agency is one of the primary dangers of information overload. For decades, researchers have noted that consuming too much upsetting news can damage a person's mental health, making them feel powerless and vulnerable. In the 1970s and 80s, communications researcher Grace Levine began recording how often public news broadcasts described negative events as uncontrollable and impossible to avoid. She discovered, in multiple studies, that over 70% of news stories emphasized how helpless people were to avoid being victims of things like crime, natural disaster, and untimely death. While it's true that many of these events are difficult to personally control or forestall, there's a real psychological and social danger in portraying the world as so menacing and uncontrollable. In the 1990s and 2000s, 24-hour news channels and internet news sites spread in popularity. Watching the news shifted from something you did for maybe an hour per day after dinner to something you could do constantly, even as a primary source of entertainment. During that period, fear of crime and disaster sharply increased, and that increase was directly linked to people's news-watching habits. Studies found that generally, the more news a person watched or read, the more fearful they felt, and the more dangerous they perceived their surroundings to be, regardless of how safe or unsafe their actual communities were. In the most extreme cases, fear of crime had zero relationship to the actual crime rate itself. Even as the murder rate was going down throughout the country, most Americans were convinced it was on a precipitous rise. Even worse, this fear seemed to alter people's behavior. Frequent news watchers engaged in more avoidant behaviors than other people. They stayed inside more often, didn't socialize as much with other people, and spent less time trying new things and going to new places. Generally speaking, this kind of isolation is very bad for a person's continued growth and development. In some studies, frequent news watching has even been found to increase a person's racial bias. The old adage is that knowledge is power. But when it comes to scary, threatening news, research suggests the exact opposite. Frightening information can actually rob people of their inner sense of control, making them less likely to take care of themselves and other people. 
Public health research shows that when the news presents health-related information in a pessimistic way, people are actually less likely to take steps to protect themselves from illness as a result. A news article that's intended to warn people about increasing cancer rates, for example, can actually backfire and result in fewer people choosing to get screened for the disease because they're so terrified of what they might find. This is also true for issues such as climate change. When a news story is all doom and gloom, people feel fatalistic and become less interested in taking small, personal steps to fight ecological collapse. The laziness lie encourages very binary thinking. People are either hardworking no matter their circumstances, or they're hopelessly lazy. A problem can either be fixed with sheer determination and individualism, or it's impossible to solve and therefore pointless to try. This framing encourages obsessive devotion to the issues we care about. When working tirelessly to fix a problem becomes untenable, the laziness lie tells us we might as well give up. Stressing out about a topic is not actually a means of working to address the problem. It may feel productive because it keeps our minds busy and engaged, but it actually saps us of the energy to put up a genuine fight. Information overload can even damage our cognitive abilities. Research shows that when a person gets bombarded with a ton of information, they lose the ability to focus. Very little of the information gets stored in their memory. If you've ever watched a TV show while screwing around on your phone and then realized that you missed an entire scene or plot point because you were distracted, you know exactly what this feels like. Paradoxically, by trying to cram too much knowledge into our minds, we destroy our ability to make sense of or hold on to any of it. Information overload can damage our decision-making abilities for similar reasons. In order for information to be useful to us, we have to find time to reflect on it, process it, and see if it lines up with the facts we already know. But when we're in a state of information overload, this quiet contemplation can't happen, leading us to make all kinds of errors and mistakes. Online scams, such as phishing, try to capitalize on how overwhelmed and mentally vulnerable people are when they're on the internet. The goal of a phishing scam is to get a distracted person to quickly send their login info to someone pretending to be their boss or a representative from their bank without a second thought. Often, the messages sent by scammers are designed to make the recipients panic, telling them that they've been hacked or that their bank account was compromised and therefore they must email their password to the fisher ASAP. Research shows that when people are distracted or overloaded, they're less likely to notice that someone is lying to them, and worse at evaluating the quality or trustworthiness of information thrown their way. Ironically, we might be at the greatest risk of falling for fake news when we're habitually consuming too much information. According to Pew, 20% of Americans report feeling anxious and overloaded by how much information is available online. However, 77% say they actually like having access to as much information as they do. This makes sense when we remember the research showing that smartphones and access to the Internet make people feel powerful. Most of us feel strongly tempted to learn as much as possible to avail ourselves of all the stimulation and power the Internet has to offer. But in order for us to engage with information meaningfully, we have to set limits on how much of it we take in. 
Setting Information Limits Exposure to the wrong type of information can actually cause a trauma response. Social workers, therapists, and the loved ones of assault victims often suffer from something called secondary trauma, a post-traumatic stress response that results from hearing about another person's experiences of abuse, assault, or violence. It turns out that you don't have to experience a violent act firsthand in order to be severely affected by it. The Internet, sadly, is rife with opportunities for secondary trauma. Videos of shootings, interviews with victims of natural disasters, and distressing graphs of the lives lost to disease can show up just about anywhere. While it's important to know that these problems exist, relentlessly encountering images of them can do us a lot of harm. Nimi Seer, the sexual health advocate I discussed in Chapter 3, told me that she mutes words like rape and sexual assault from her Twitter feed so she doesn't have to engage with posts about those topics. Even though a key part of her work is educating people about sexual consent and rape culture, she knows it's not productive to fight constantly with anyone who posts something ignorant online. Sometimes you have to walk away from the messages that are disturbing, she says. I can't see all of it, and I can't fight with all of it, you know? I know that in my advocacy work, I'm already doing so much. Nimisir has reached a key point of realization. She knows it's not her job to read every post and fight with every sexist pig on the internet. It's not even her job to talk to every assault victim posting about their trauma. The world is huge, and everywhere we turn, some horrific injustice is occurring. We can't engage with all of it, and we don't need to feel guilty or lazy for refusing to try. We deserve to give ourselves credit for all the hard work we're already doing. The way the internet and social media currently work, it's very easy to get pulled into a constant state of agitation and fear in order to overcome the heavy informational burden that most of us are saddled with. We have to set limits. At first, taking these steps may feel like plugging your ears and ignoring the cruelty of the world. It may look like apathy or laziness, but remember, laziness does not exist. It's sustaining and self-protective to know our limits. It helps us reorient toward our true priorities. When we focus on the things that we really care about and reduce exposure to things that needlessly hurt us, we become more effective, healthy advocates. If you are struggling with information overload and aren't sure how to dial it back, here are some good places to start. Use filtering and muting tools. Almost every social media app has a mute function. On Twitter, you can hide any post that contains words or phrases of your choosing, as well as muting individual people. On Facebook, you can mute words and phrases or unfollow friends who post upsetting or irritating content. On social media, I have certain anti-LGBTQ plus slurs blocked, as well as the names of a few right-wing bigots whose transphobic comments often make the news. I do a lot to fight transphobia and educate the benignly ignorant. I don't have to fight online with people who wish I didn't exist. For sites that don't have their own built-in muting function, there are apps you can download that perform a similar function. Sadblock filters and hides news articles about triggering or disturbing topics such as sexual assault. 
More generic apps like Custom Blocker can be programmed to hide any content that a particular person wants to avoid, whether it's fat-shaming ads for weight loss products or articles about Donald Trump. All of these tools can easily be toggled on and off, so you can get a brief update on a challenging topic and then hide posts for the rest of the day. Block whoever you need to, and don't feel bad about it. Sometimes, the source of the overload isn't a word or a phrase, it's a person. I had to unfollow Noah for a while because he was posting too many news articles. I've also blocked friends who get into constant online arguments, including people I agree with on most issues. Even if someone is fighting for the right causes, it can be disturbing to watch them constantly butting heads and spreading anger around. One of the therapists that I spoke to, Luis Dimicelli Mitran, also helps clients set boundaries on their information consumption. She also recommends blocking people who fight online a lot or who share a ton of distressing material. She's applied this advice to her own life as well. I went through my own social media, deleting and unsubscribing from things, she tells me. Now on Facebook, I get articles from other music therapists, and that's it. And that's what I use it for. Sometimes you have to say, this is my space and I need it to be clean. People often worry that blocking a friend or acquaintance is rude, the equivalent of giving them the silent treatment in real life. But when we follow someone on social media, we get exposed to their thoughts and posts throughout the day. Often during our private moments and downtime, you don't have a responsibility to let your coworker into your house to rant to you about politics at midnight. You don't have a social obligation to fill your mind with tirades, online fights, and images of war, illness, and environmental collapse at all hours. Skim the headlines and then move on. Another step Dimicelli Matran recommends is reading the news in a surface-level way. Rather than absorbing every fact about every story as it develops, she suggests merely skimming the news each day to get a general sense of what's going on. After you know the broad strokes of what's happening, you should move on and focus on your own life. I encourage people to just, you know, read the headline, Luis says, and unless it's about a topic that you're really involved with, just do that. Just go, okay, I know what's going on, now I'm going to go do my work. Of course, we all have issues that are especially close to our hearts. Even though I've blocked transphobic bigots on Twitter, I do want to be well-informed on issues related to trans people's rights and safety. For those situations, Louise suggests making a deep dive on a couple of topics at most. The ones a person has the time and energy to actually address. I recommend to people that if you have something that really touches you, some issue that really matters to you, maybe it's climate change, maybe it's domestic violence, whatever it is, you focus on the one or two things that really touch you and then get involved with addressing those things. This advice reduces the amount of information a person has to take in. It also addresses the problem of bad news making us feel helpless. If we direct our energy and attention to only a handful of issues and also take proactive steps to address those issues in the real world, we can begin to feel less overwhelmed. By focusing on the small fires that we can help put out with our own activism, we can stop feeling that the world is a constantly blazing garbage fire. 
Resist comment section culture. Comment sections are popular. They capture a lot of interest and clicks. A survey by the Engaging News Project found that 53.3% of Americans regularly write online comments on news stories and read the comments other people leave. Yet, despite the popularity of comment sections, many people report finding them to be aggravating, stressful spaces. Comment sections exist because they increase traffic to a website and boost loyalty to a site's brand. If a news article has no comment section, the average person will only ever visit that article one time to read it. However, when an article has a comment section below it, the same people may return to that page dozens of times, checking for new comments, replying to people, and maybe even getting swept up in an hours-long internet fight. Every time someone returns to the article to leave a new comment, they're giving the site a new page view. More page views means higher advertising revenue. As a result, most sites have a vested interest in stirring up controversy with outlandish clickbait headlines, getting tons of outraged comments, and letting commenters fight with one another for hours on end. Most people report that they leave comments in order to express how they are feeling, not to learn from other people or to be persuaded. People like Noah and me get pulled into meaningless internet fights at times, but it almost never results in our learning anything new or reaching anybody who wants to be educated. Comment sections are designed to manipulate our emotions. They encourage compulsive, angry use. So stop looking at them and start having private, one-on-one conversations with people you disagree with instead. If you really want to make a strong point, write an essay or a post of your own. Don't give attention to people who just want to make others incensed. If that proves difficult, there are apps like Shut Up Comment Blocker, which hide the comments section of most sites. Don't read the news before bed. Research shows that excessive news watching, particularly coverage of traumatic events, is linked to an increase in anxiety symptoms. The same is true of online news consumption. Frequent exposure increases fear and distorts a person's perceptions of how dangerous their surroundings are. These findings have led some wellness experts, such as clinical professor of internal medicine Andrew Weil, to recommend taking regular news fasts. According to Weil, a news fast should last between a few days and a week. During the fast period, a person should try to focus on their present reality and surroundings. What Luis Dimicelli Matran recommends is a bit more tempered and perhaps a bit easier to pull off. Just don't read the news before bed. After all, there's nothing you can do to address a social problem while you're lying anxiously in bed. I just don't think it's healthy to constantly know all the details of everything bad that's going on in the world, Louise says. And the details are so ugly lately. I think they've always been, but we didn't always have access to the kinds of information that we have now. In some ways, the concept of a news fast reminds me of Fred Bryant's research on dampening happiness. Worrying constantly about worst-case scenarios that may or may not come to pass is a surefire way to distract us from enjoying our present lives. It's much healthier for a person to live in the current moment and focus their attention on information that's truly useful to them and the local problems they can address. Consume less information more meaningfully. When we first encounter a new fact or idea, 
our brains review it in a very surface-level way. In my field, social psychology, it's often said that the first step to understanding something is assuming it's true. We tend to be a bit gullible and uncritical when we're first introduced to a new idea. It's only by taking the time to reflect on new knowledge that we can really make deeper sense of it. When we spend time carefully pondering information, we're able to reevaluate our pre-existing opinions, discover the holes in someone's argument, or see a familiar idea in a completely new light. Researchers sometimes call this process elaboration. It takes a lot of energy and attention to elaborate on new information. When a person is distracted, tired, or suffering from serious information overload, they can't really elaborate on anything new. Taking a slower, more contemplative approach to learning can help us to be more thoughtful and critical and can help us reduce anxiety. As an educator, I've noticed that when I try to make my students memorize too much information at once, they end up understanding almost none of it. But when I slowly work through a lesson and give people plenty of time to digest it, discuss it, and even challenge it, they can come to comprehend it in a more lasting, personal way. What matters is the quality and intentionality behind our efforts, not how hard we're pushing and pressuring ourselves. Here are a few steps a person can take if they want to consume less information in a more meaningful way. Practice active reading. Active reading is the exact opposite of the frantic doom-scrolling so many of us do online. Instead of trying to take in as much information as quickly as you can, you work to slowly and intentionally break down small passages. This increases your odds of meaningfully processing what you've read. I recommend active reading to many of my students, especially the ones who are taking classes after many years away from school. But it's really an invaluable technique that can benefit anybody. Active reading sometimes involves using the following six skills. 1. Visualize what the text is describing. After reading a paragraph, sit back and try to create a mental picture of what you've just read. For complex or scientific topics, consider looking up videos or charts to help you visualize the phenomenon being described, or try drawing a chart yourself. 2. Clarify confusing passages and unfamiliar terms. Slow down to reread something if it's unclear. Write down words or terms that you don't know, and then take a moment at the end of each page to look up their definitions. 3. Question the author's assumptions and point of view. Consider why the writer chose to use the examples they're using. Look at the writer's sources and see if they seem trustworthy. Ponder what the author's goal is for the piece of writing. 4. Predict what will come next. At the end of each section, jot down a few thoughts about what you hope the piece will touch on next. What lingering questions do you have? See if you can anticipate where the author is going. 5. Connect the writing to things you already know. Does this piece of writing line up with what you already believed, or does it not? What are some other subjects or topics that it seems relevant to? Who else might find this writing interesting? 6. Evaluate the qualities of the writing. Was the writing persuasive? Did you find it easy to follow? Did it seem to represent the facts fairly? Even if you disagree with the author's conclusions, can you understand where they're coming from? It's easy to get distracted by the constant stream of information that the internet provides us, and to develop bad reading habits. 
Like anybody else, I can feel tempted to race through as many articles as possible, cramming my brain with superficial facts I haven't taken the time to really contemplate. If, like me, you sometimes struggle with information overload, you can fall back on these methods to slow down and process things with greater intention. Have a real-time conversation. The internet provides endless opportunities to argue with other people and to be misunderstood. Too much online arguing can actually make a person less willing to open up to someone they disagree with, because it gives them an overly pessimistic view of how those conversations will go. Experimental research shows that when two people speak privately about a disagreement, they feel much greater satisfaction than when they speak to someone in a public, online venue, such as a comment section. They also feel more emotionally close to their conversation partner and are more likely to share personal information. The warmth and emotional complexity of a real-time conversation can help two people reach common ground when they disagree and can foster feelings of friendship and mutual respect. Sam learned this recently when they met up with their sister following a big fight via text message. Sam and their sister often get into spats via text. I'll tell my sister that it would be nice to see her at my Christmas party, Sam says, and she'll think I'm being passive-aggressive or sarcastic. Even if I add a smiley face, she'll think I'm doing it to mock her. Then again, I do the exact same thing to her. Every little message gets under my skin. Despite all the hurt feelings and resentments that have brought tension to their relationship, once the two of them are face-to-face, Sam feels much more at ease. Once I'm actually looking at my sister and spending time with her, I can't maintain the terrible version of her that I've created in my mind, Sam says. In real life, she apologizes if she says something in a rude way. She laughs when things are awkward in this way that's totally lovable. I can't stay angry at her the way I could if I were texting from miles away, stewing over old arguments. Taking an online conflict out into the real world can really help diffuse tension and clarify confusion. If you can't meet in person, try switching from a cold medium, like text, to a warm one, such as a video conference. This method has helped me calm down panicked students and fighting coworkers in the past. Like Sam and their sister, most people have a harder time staying angry when they can see and hear the person they're speaking to. This piece of advice won't work for all conflicts, of course. If I'm fighting online with a neo-Nazi or someone who believes women are inherently inferior to men, I'm not going to have a better time speaking to them face-to-face. There are some disagreements in which a reasonable peace cannot, or should not, ever be found. But when a disagreement isn't a life-and-death issue, and both parties do want to understand each other, speaking in person, or in real time, can do wonders to de-escalate conflict. Get comfortable with not knowing. The absolute best way to combat the urge to overconsume information is to get comfortable with not knowing everything. In a world poisoned by the laziness lie, the pressure to constantly improve ourselves is immense. Many of us want to fill our every waking moment with work, achievement, and the development of new skills. The more we strive to be productive and to improve ourselves, the logic goes, the more value we bring to society. Yet our minds need time to recharge, and our lives are more vibrant and pleasurable when we have time that isn't focused on being productive. On top of that, it's arrogant and unrealistic for us to expect ourselves to be well-versed in all topics. 
a much healthier approach is to be humble about our limitations. On the internet, we're constantly asked to share our opinion. Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram all entice us to share what we're up to and what we're thinking about. Nearly every website has a comment section, begging us to sound off and share our views. Comment culture has taught us to speak more than we listen, to form an opinion based only on a headline, and to rush into conversations when we lack relevant expertise. But we don't have to sound off on every issue under the sun. We can choose to read slowly and think before we speak. As all the research shows, taking a more intentional, open-minded approach to these matters helps a person to experience less stress. It also makes us better citizens and more responsible consumers of information. Knowledge can empower us, but only when we take the time to wield it responsibly. Focus on what you can control. In January of 2020, Noah and I had a fight via email about which steps individual people should take to mitigate climate change. Noah was dismayed by how little his friends and co-workers were willing to alter their lives in order to help the environment. I'm so frustrated by this super pervasive thing I see all over lefty, progressive spaces, he wrote, of emphasizing over and over that it's too late for individual choices around the environment to matter. I still don't see how that fact absolves us of any responsibility to look at what we could do differently. I told Noah that I understood why people felt dejected and powerless in the fight against climate change. It's challenging, time-consuming, and expensive to make eco-friendly choices. And even if I commit to an entire lifetime of green behaviors, it all could be overridden by the environmental damage a single billionaire does in a day. In addition to that, the news on climate change often makes it seem like a foregone conclusion. Under those circumstances, didn't it make sense that people had checked out from the fight? I get it. This is a problem that can't be solved by individual choices, Noah replied. But my point is that this is the only issue I can think of where people actively discourage each other from taking steps to address it. Noah and I went back and forth on this for a while. He argued that society needed to do more to educate people and to encourage them to behave in ecologically sound ways. I claimed that it would be nearly impossible to motivate people to make changes because the news presented it as this looming, abstract fear no one person had any control over. Eventually, we stopped the email thread because it was getting a bit heated. I walked away from the conversation, certain I was right. Then COVID-19 hit the United States. I was astonished by how rapidly and selflessly the people around me responded. Long before any of them were legally required to, my friends and neighbors started isolating themselves. Local theaters and bars canceled performances in order to reduce crowding. Restaurants began offering free food delivery to elderly people and the newly unemployed. People placed loving but firm pressure on those who refused to socially distance. This swift, expansive response rose up in a matter of days and took effect long before our state and local government started requiring us to isolate. Like climate change, COVID-19 began as a mostly abstract fear. Like climate change, the virus was terrifying to think about and we knew serious damage was inevitable. The news presented us with dozens of apocalyptic-seeming projections of how the COVID-19 disaster might play out. Just as they do with climate change, 
Yet individual people rapidly started making responsible, altruistic choices to address the pandemic, despite having spent years doing comparatively little to address climate change. Why? I think the difference is that with the coronavirus, people felt empowered to make a meaningful choice. As the virus spread, fear ramped up, but so did knowledge about which proactive steps a person could take to minimize disaster. The news coverage of worst-case scenarios, such as how brutally the virus hit Italy, filled people with terror. But the response of countries like South Korea and Taiwan provided crucial, motivating counterexamples. In countries where people took the pandemic seriously, thousands of lives were spared. We weren't just being fed messages of doom. We were also given hope. Though each of us was terrified by the onslaught of bad news about COVID-19, we also knew where to look for advice about how to respond. The steps we needed to take were clear and feasible, and we knew that everyone else was also taking them. Stay inside, wear a mask, deliver groceries to elderly people around you, keep at least six feet away. This advice was as widely spread by the news media as the doom and gloom projections were. Instead of paralyzing us with anxiety, the news called us to action. Most of us gladly answered that call and found solace in the fact that there were elements of this massive problem we could actually control. Two weeks into the pandemic, I emailed Noah, and I told him I took back everything I said about how helpless fighting climate change seemed. Individuals are capable of coming together and making a difference, I told him. They just have to believe that their choices matter and that they're not alone in making them. Information can be used to motivate and inspire. Knowledge can be shared in a way that encourages critical thought and careful decision-making rather than prejudice and panic. The Internet has gotten us addicted to a constant drip of low-quality information. But we can refuse to be overwhelmed into passivity. It's not lazy to draw limits on the amount and type of information we consume. Doing so is actually an essential public service. Chapter 6. Your relationships should not leave you exhausted. Grace complains about her invasive and undermining mother, Sylvia, pretty much constantly. Sylvia is an expert at making her daughter feel small and insecure. She seems to have been a disapproving presence for Grace's whole life. When Grace was excited to become second violin in her city's community orchestra, Sylvia asked when she was going to become first chair. Sylvia sends Grace tons of unasked-for gifts in the mail, often things that Grace has no interest in. She gets angry if her daughter doesn't immediately reach out to thank her for her generosity. Sylvia expects constant praise and affirmation of her goodness as a mother, something that Grace really struggles to provide. My mom calls me up whenever she's upset about something, Grace says, and basically demands that I tell her she was a good mom. She'll bring up a handful of good things she did, like taking the family to Disneyland, and ask me, wasn't that a good time? Wasn't I a good mom to you and your siblings? And if I don't bend over backward trying to praise her, she'll get chilly with me or say something totally cruel. Sylvia can be extremely difficult to deal with, but she isn't all bad. She works as an oncology nurse and is beloved by her patients and their families. Whenever Grace has a violin performance, Sylvia clears her calendar to fly to Chicago to come see it. 
When other people are around, Sylvia can seem like a warm, proud mother showering her talented daughter with praise. On paper, her mother is a caring, giving person, yet whenever Grace interacts with her, she feels like she's been emotionally vampirized. It reached a low point last summer, just as Grace was starting a new job. Her mother and her 13-year-old sister appeared unannounced on her doorstep the morning of Grace's first day of work, saying they'd come to surprise her. They were holding luggage. I thought I was going to projectile vomit on them, Grace says. My mom standing there, and she obviously thinks she and my sister are going to stay with me, even though they never asked. And she can see on my face that I'm not giving her the you know, thrilled reaction she hoped this surprise was going to get. She can see I'm not grateful, and so she's already starting to get pissed. Grace let her mother and sister into her apartment and tried to put on a happy face, but the damage was already done. Her mind was racing with anxiety. How was she going to make it to work on time? Was her roommate going to be upset that they had surprise guests? Sylvia could see it. She'd planned the surprise expecting gratitude and praise, and she wasn't getting it. So she became furious. My mother spent the whole visit fuming on the couch, Grace said. I tried to make dinner plans with her. I offered to take my sister to the museum. I visited them on my lunch break, even though it was a total pain. It didn't matter. Mom decided I was being ungrateful, so she made the whole visit miserable. I had to spend the next, like, three months apologizing to her. As she's telling me this story, Grace gets a text from her mom. She shows me the screen and sighs, rolling her eyes. Grace recognizes how one-sided and unhealthy her relationship with her mother is. Despite that, she halts our conversation so she can give her mother a call. I watch Grace pace the sidewalk, reassuring her mom that yes, she will be coming home to visit for Thanksgiving, and yes, she really is looking forward to it. She looks visibly pained. Many of us struggle with unbalanced relationships. We don't know how to say no to someone who expects ridiculous things of us. We try to fix other people's problems because we can't stand to see them upset. We take responsibility for all the household chores because we're afraid to ask our partners or roommates to pull more weight. We give more than we ought to, yet whenever we imagine asking someone else to pick up the slack, we feel terrified. The laziness lie has eroded our sense of healthy boundaries and consent. When we believe hard work is the only true good in life and that we must earn our right to be loved, it becomes hard for us to know how to draw limits, even with the people we love. Just as we struggle to cut back on unfair work demands, we also struggle to back down from social expectations that make us uncomfortable. Often, we are left feeling that we have no right to boundaries at all. Most of us spend the entire work week ignoring our body's need for rest and idleness because the laziness lie says our feelings are a source of weakness that shouldn't be trusted. That tendency to ignore our needs can seep into our personal lives too making us horrible at standing up to the people who leech our energy. We get so good at ignoring our needs that we can't even recognize when a relationship is damaging. We end up repeating being exploited and manipulated, rather than being nourished and supported. 
As an adult, with a few years of therapy under her belt, Grace has come to realize that her mother's behavior is inappropriate. She also recognizes that whenever she speaks to her mother, she feels horrible for hours afterward. However, an entire lifetime of being Sylvia's daughter has made Grace very accustomed to swallowing her words and striving to please. Confronting Sylvia about her bad behavior still seems kind of unthinkable. My mom raised me and she put me through college, Grace says. I can't just throw her away like garbage. I love her. It's telling that Grace thinks pushing back against her mother would be akin to treating her like garbage. When a person has grown up prioritizing the needs of other people, they often mistakenly believe that it's selfish to have any needs of their own. In her book, Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents, How to Heal from Distant, Rejecting, or Self-Involved Parents, psychologist Lindsay C. Gibson writes that children who did not receive adequate care and attention from their parents learn that the only kinds of relationships they deserve to have are unbalanced ones. She writes, Emotional loneliness is so distressing that a child who experiences it will do whatever is necessary to make some kind of connection. These children may learn to put other people's needs first as the price of admission to a relationship. While Gibson's work focuses on child-parent relationships, she notes that these dynamics also play out in romantic partnerships and friendships. When a person believes that the only way to be loved is to please somebody else, they end up in all kinds of overly demanding relationships, forever giving more than they receive and never feeling truly seen. This is exactly what happened with Grace. She's the only roommate in her four-bedroom apartment who cleans the communal living areas at all. She regularly gives her friends rides across town, spots them money for food and drinks, and spends many evenings listening to her loved ones complain about their problems. There's nothing wrong with these loving gestures, of course. But in Grace's case, they aren't reciprocated. She never learned how to ask for the same kind of support she compulsively doles out. She tells me it feels incredibly lonely. As Gibson writes, covering up your deepest needs prevents genuine connection with others. Human beings are interdependent. We need social connection and community in order to thrive. Yet many of us live in such deep fear of disappointing other people that we compromise our own values and abandon our well-being in the process. The laziness lie actively encourages this painful self-erasure by teaching us that our value is defined by what we can do for other people. In order to form authentic, safe bonds with others, we must get comfortable with letting other people down. We have to be able to say no in our relationship, just as we must learn to dial back our punishingly heavy workloads and other commitments. Emotional overexertion can be just as damaging as professional overwork. The answer to both is to embrace our authentic needs and to stop worrying that saying no makes us lazy. Dealing with a demanding family Like Grace, Brian constantly feels pressured by his parents to give them vast quantities of time and attention. Whenever he gets a day off from his high-stress job as a research chemist, his parents expect him to fly home to visit them. Over the years, this has put a ton of stress on his marriage. He and his wife, Stephanie, haven't taken a vacation together as a couple in years. Brian's parents even demanded that his wedding take place 
in their hometown several states away instead of in St. Louis, where the couple now lives. Recently, Stephanie reached a breaking point. She blurted out at me, You're married to your parents, not me, Brian says. And she brought up all these times I dropped whatever I was doing to go help my parents out, even if it meant leaving her behind. Initially, Brian felt very defensive. Stephanie is a white woman from a Midwestern family, and her relatives have entirely different expectations than Brian's Korean-American family does. The first few times that Stephanie complained about Brian's family being overly demanding, he chalked it up to cultural differences that she didn't grasp. Over time, though, he has begun to question whether some of her complaints are valid. There's probably a middle ground I could try to strike, Brian says. I want to be there for my parents and show that I love them and will always be there for them, but at the same time, I've literally never said no to them or taken space, so maybe it's time to cut the cord a little bit. Kathy Labriola is a counselor based in the San Francisco Bay Area. For decades, she's treated clients who work themselves into a frenzy trying to meet the needs of other people. A lot of people are addicted to approval, she says. I think most women are. But it's not just women who do it. A lot of people seek out situations that feed into that need they have to feel useful to other people. Since the 1980s, Kathy has worked to help clients develop assertiveness and reshape unbalanced relationships. Most of the advice she gives consists of relatively small, subtle steps a person can take to gradually reduce their level of commitment to another person. These steps aren't dramatic or cathartic. There's no big moment when her patients confront the friends and family who've berated them all their lives. Instead, Kathy's recommended steps are all about replacing old, ineffective patterns with better ones. Sharon Glassburn takes a similar view and also recommends that her clients change their relationship dynamics in a gradual way. People sometimes expect these big moments of big conflict, she says, but usually building boundaries with a loved one comes down to more mundane steps, and they take time. Overall, the advice that both Sharon and Kathy give to their clients consists of three broad strokes. Challenge expectations that the person has for you, practice disappointing the person, and keep repeating your no over and over again, even if it makes you feel like a broken record. Clear up expectations. Overly demanding people often assume that you'll meet their needs without ever saying so outright. When a client of hers is caught in a relationship with someone like that, Sharon recommends sitting down with a challenging person and making their expectations explicit. So often we go into a relationship with unspoken ideas of what to expect from the other person, she says. And sometimes even just naming what they're asking you for can make a big difference. In Brian's case, this involved actually telling his parents that their demands were too extreme. I had to tell them that not all of my coworkers traveled home to see their parents every time they had a long weekend, he says. That didn't change what my parents wanted from me, but it did help me explain why I couldn't visit them so often anymore. And it made me feel more like I was being a reasonable person. In friendships, it's rare for people to have explicit conversations about what they want and what they're able to give to the other person. 
But Sharon says laying those things bare can clear up a lot of conflicts. It can also illustrate when two people are at an impasse. Sometimes it can really help to sit down together and just talk about what do you expect from me? What do I need from you? She tells me. If you find that a person's expectations or needs are overly large or simply aren't a good fit, you can begin to cut back on your commitments to them. Warn the person that you'll be pulling back. Kathy Labriola recommends giving your loved one a heads up that things are about to change. This warning doesn't have to be confrontational. In fact, it doesn't even have to be honest. Sometimes it works better if you soften the blow with an excuse. I suggest that people tell their family members they're going through something and that they're going to be less available, Kathy says. That way, you're giving them some advanced warning that it's nothing personal. You just won't be able to do as much for them as you have in the past. For many people, an effective excuse to fall back on is busyness. Sometimes, the only limit people can fully understand is one created by work. So, if you're dealing with someone who does not respect your emotional boundaries, you can actually leverage the language of busyness in order to get away with doing less. This tactic was effective for Brian. His parents didn't respect his needs or the needs of his wife, but they did respect his high-pressure job. So he learned to use it to his advantage. If I don't have the energy to talk to them one day, I just tell them I'm having a late night at work, he says. Once I told them I had a work conference when really Stephanie and I went camping. If I use my job as the reason I'm pulling back, they don't get mad, and they don't take it personally as much. Say no to small things. It takes time to retrain a person and adjust their expectations. It also takes time to train ourselves to stop reflexively saying yes so much. Kathy finds it's often most effective to begin with small refusals particularly ones that won't blow up into a huge conflict. Start by saying no to small things, she says, because those are easier and the consequences are less. Start to notice when the demanding person asks for something small, like getting a ride to the airport, and just start to say no to some of those things. This step combines very well with the previous piece of advice. If you've already warned the demanding person, that you have a lot on your plate and can't be as available for them as you once were, you'll have an explanation to fall back on if they become upset. Over time, you can begin to increase what you're capable of saying no to. It makes for great self-advocacy practice. Grace was desperately in need of self-advocacy practice if she was ever going to resist her mom's manipulations. Her therapist suggested she try disappointing a loved one at least once per week. So that's exactly what she did. It started out small, but it helped her recognize which of her friends were really there for her. Some people disappeared on me the second I stopped giving them free rides and going out of my way to be there for them, she says. But other people stepped up their game. I told my friend Phil I couldn't pick him up every time he wanted to hang out, and he immediately started taking lifts to my house just like it was nothing. That told me he really wanted to spend time with me, even when I wasn't doing all the work to make it happen. 
With other relationships, though, the change was not as seamless. In those situations, Grace had to learn to stand strong and reassert her needs and limits as often as necessary. Don't be afraid to be a broken record. When you enforce a new boundary with someone, they'll tend to push back against it. In order to hold firm, you may have to say no and provide your standard excuse over and over and over again. I call it the broken record technique, Kathy says. You just have to keep telling them the same thing over again. Eventually, they'll get the message, but it takes time. You can't expect a person to adapt immediately when you've been behaving a different way with them for your whole life. Kathy has been through this process herself with a younger sister who used to expect Kathy to baby her and take care of her. After decades of always rushing to help her sister out and meet her every need, Kathy realized she had to dial things back. About 20 years ago, I started changing that relationship, she says, and it took years. I'd been giving in to my sister's manipulations for, like, 40 years or something, so I couldn't expect her to just be fine with it the first time I said no. 